Welcome to Time Travelling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Trisha. And I'm Paddy. This week we join the Doctor and his friends in the final story of Season 7. Parallel dimensions, obnoxious scientists, and short short skirts abound in Inferno. We will be discussing the Doctor and the other characters, as well as the skirts, and giving our thoughts on the story as a whole. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on this story and the skirts <laughs> so to join the discussion you can check us out at time team that's t-i-m-e-t-e-a-m-p on facebook twitter and instagram or you can email us at time team at com. and now paddington over to you to take us to the end of season seven who likes short skirts we like short skirts <laughs> <laughs> episode one the doctor is driving bessie attempting to sing La Traviata as he makes his way into a restricted complex. Inside the complex, a maintenance engineer by the name of Slocum reports to Sir Keith Gold, who asks him to take a look at an output pipe that is malfunctioning. Slocum says that he should be able to fix it, and Sir Keith asks him to fix it as soon as possible, as the complex administrator and project leader, Professor Stallman, does not like delays. Stallman arrives and asks what is slowing down the rate of the drilling, and Sir Keith tells him about the malfunction. Stallman says he was aware of the malfunction, but says that the drilling could have continued and berates Sir Keith for his interference. Sir Keith tries to explain to his executive director of the project that it is his responsibility to respond to these falls, but Stallman mocks his authority and says he is only there to make sure the canteen is stocked, but anything to do with the drilling is Stallman's responsibility. Stallman leaves, but his assistant Petra stays behind and says that Stallman is possessive over the project as it is his life's work. Sir Keith then confides in her that he has requested the assistance of a renowned drilling expert, Greg Sutton, as he feels his expertise in a deep crust drilling is needed as no one on the project seems to recognise the dangers involved. At the outflow pipe, a Slocum notices a strange green ooze emerging from the pipe seam, but when he touches it, he recoils in pain and is shocked to see that his skin of his hand has turned green. He then goes into a deep trance-like state and then leaves the complex, informing an impatient stallman that he has fixed the pipe. He staggers outside and collapses against the stairway. One of the technicians notices this and goes to assist him, but Slocum throws him to the ground and then with an animalistic growl starts to savagely beat him with a wrench. Inside the facility, Benton is finishing setting up the brigadier's office when the brigadier arrives. He asks for an update on Slocum and Benton says that they still haven't been able to find him. The doctor then arrives and the brigadier comments that the trouble seems to follow him wherever he goes, informing him about the murder coinciding with his arrival at the complex. The Brigadier shows him the wrench that was recovered from the scene, and the Doctor comments that it is warm. The Brigadier informs him that when he found it, it was red hot, as if it had just been removed from a furnace. He then orders Benton to carry on the search for Slocum, and once he is gone, he asks the Doctor why he wanted to observe the project. The Doctor says that a scientific event like the first man-made penetration of Earth's crust is a moment worth studying, and he then leaves, wishing the Brigadier well in his search for Slocum. Meanwhile, Sutton has arrived and Sir Keith shows him the drill head, which Sutton is amazed by. He is even more amazed that the drill head, which is robotic in nature and attached to cables powered by a nuclear reactor, has achieved a current depth of 20 miles. Passing a comment about waking the devil if they go any further, Sir Keith jokingly replies that some staff members have nicknamed the complex the Inferno. He is then informed that the purpose of the project is to tap and mine large pockets of gas, which Stallman has named after himself, beneath the Earth's crust and use it as a new energy source, which will be even more powerful than the gas mined from the North Sea. Sir Keith then takes Sutton to meet some of the senior staff and introduces him to Petra, who he takes an immediate interest in and attempts to flirt with, but is unsuccessful. He is then introduced to Stallman, who he treats dismissively, before going on a rant about Sir Keith's cautious nature and his perceived attempts to stall the progress of the project. 
Just then, the Doctor arrives and Stalman storms off, along with Sir Keith to introduce Sutton to him. The Doctor shares his opinion on the operation, citing the fact that no one is equipped to realise the warning signs given off by the complex's master computer. He then activates a power console for his own side project elsewhere, and he says his goodbyes. However, as he leaves, he overhears Stalman talking about the waste of time and money Sir Keith is causing by bringing in people like Sutton. He stops just long enough to point out a technical error and echo Stalman's words when saying what would happen if it was left unattended much longer. The Doctor drives to a shed at the edge of the complex and after a brief exchange about Slocum with the unit guard outside, drives inside and greets Liz who is working on the TARDIS console. He tells her about the murder and she says that she already knows thanks to the sentry. She then cautions him about his plan to try reactivating the TARDIS console, but he sadly tells her that his exile makes him feel like a shipwrecked victim. She tries to get him to rethink his plan, but he insists on trying, and she prepares to start the power-up. Elsewhere, Slocum, whose skin is now completely green and covered in fur, makes his way into the nuclear reactor control room, where he attacks the technician and pushes the power output to maximum, clutching his head in pain as he does so. Inside the shed, the power surge causes the TARDIS console, with the Doctor attached to it, to vanish completely from sight. They enter a strange void, which seems on the verge of tearing them apart, but Liz manages to shut down the power station, and the Doctor and the console reappear. Liz goes to check on them, and the Doctor recounts his experience to her, saying that he encountered some sort of barrier in the void. His curiosity gets the better of him, and he says he intends to try again. However, an alarm at the drill head goes off, and they make their way back to the main complex. Inside the drill room, smoke is pouring from the drill shaft and Sir Keith orders the room to be evacuated and the safety shutters lowered. However, Stalman arrives and countermands the order and refuses to listen to Sir Keith's protest to shut down the drill. Stalman goes to Petra, who is attempting to contact the reactor room, and Sutton says if the drill is stopped now, they would not be able to get it going again due to the depth and pressure of its current location. Sir Keith says that that may be for the best. Sutton then notices Petra going to the drill head to check the coolant flow, and he goes to stop her, saying it is too dangerous, but she goes anyway. The Doctor and Liz arrive and Sir Keith shows him a data stream from the main computer, informing them of the power surge. The Brigadier then arrives and says that one of his men was killed in the reactor room, and the Doctor vainly attempts to warn Stalman about what is going on. However, when he's not listened to, he goes to the reactor room with Liz and Sir Keith and the Brigadier. Petra returns and says that the coolant controls are jammed. Stalman heads for the drill room and she goes to follow him, but she is stopped by Sutton who again says it is too dangerous in the room, and she is acting foolishly by following Stalman, and not bravely as she may think she is. He follows after her and attempts to help the technician fix the two coolant controls, taking over from Stalman. In the reactor room, the doctor and the others find the unconscious body of the technician, but they recoil in shock when a growling slocum bursts from his hiding place. Episode 2 The doctor tells everyone to stay back and keep calm as he tries to speak to slocum. Suddenly the phone rings, which distracts Slocum long enough for one of the unit soldiers to try and flank him. The soldier manages to wound Slocum before he is thrown to the ground, and Slocum falls back against the wall. He vainly tries to stop the doctor from lowering the power of the reactor, who is forced to use the brigadier's pistol to touch the red-hot power handle, and he then slumps to the ground dead, leaving a large scorch mark on the wall where his body touched. The doctor picks up the ringing phone and answers an irate Stallman, who has been trying to get in contact with them to lower the power, as Sutton has managed to free the coolant controls. The doctor angrily tells him that the issue is resolved and hangs up on him. Stalman then goes to the drill room, where Sutton lightens the mood with a joke and kudos to the technicians. Stalman tells everyone to get back to work and tells an incredulous Sutton that it was incompetence at the nuclear reactor that caused the fault and refuses to listen to his protests about being more careful. He then leaves, and Petra thanks Sutton, who requests that she call him Greg. 
He asks her to present a list of safety recommendations to Stallman, as he feels he might listen to her. The doctor examines Slocum's body and discovers that he was shot through the heart twice by Private Wyatt, which he and the Brigadier find amazing due to his staying alive for so long after being shot. The doctor tells Benton to advise the medical team not to touch the body as it is still boiling hot. The Brigadier then asks Wyatt if he is okay, but he seems to be in the same trance-like state that Slocum was before he transformed. He then takes the doctor outside onto the parapet overlooking the complex and asks him what he think happened to Slocum. The doctor thinks his body entered some sort of regressive metamorphosis. The brigadier asks about the animalistic growling Slocum made, and the doctor says he heard something like it before, at the volcanic eruption of Krakatoa, suggesting that there is some link between then and now. Benton suddenly arrives and tells him that Wyatt and the unconscious technician have disappeared. The brigadier goes with Benton, and the doctor remains behind. He suddenly notices Wyatt on a higher level of the parapet, and goes after him when he tries to run away. He finally catches up with Wyatt and sees that he has entered the same metamorphosis as Slocum. Wyatt swings his gun like a club at the Doctor, who keeps his distance, but his momentum takes him over the railings and he plummets to the ground below. Benton arrives on the scene and the Doctor calls down not to touch him. After he makes his way down to ground level, the technician appears in the upper part of the parapet, also going through the same metamorphosis. Inside the drill room, Stalman has worked out that they can increase the drill speed and is about to inform the newly arrived Petra but she tells him Sir Key wishes to see him. They go into the control room where Sutton, the brigadier and the doctor are also in attendance, and Sir Keith then shows them a jar of the ooze that leaked out from the outflow pipe that Slocum was fixing. He says that the lab has been unable to analyse it due to the extreme heat, and Stallman snidely remarks that they would have to wait for it to cool down. The doctor says that it won't, again referencing Krakatoa when goaded by the rude Stallman. The brigadier demands to speak to Stallman in relation to the murders, and together they leave with Sir Keith. Inside his office, he shows no interest in the murders, saying that they are not his concern and he continually questions the use of the Doctor, but mainly from a point of jealousy when Sir Keith mentions the Doctor's superior intellect. Outside, Liz and the Doctor then examine the jar of ooze, with the Doctor saying he wishes he could hear it to know if it's sentient. Liz then brings his attention to the readout from the main computer, where after seeing the results, he makes his way into Stalman's office to inform him of the readout. However, Stalman states that the computer is overcautious and his own calculations are more accurate, leading the Doctor to call him a nitwit. Petra then summons him outside and shows him the jar, which begins to crack due to the heat. The doctor tells Stalman not to touch it, but he does so anyway and places it back in the storage box before tending to his burnt hand. Sir Keith and the doctor then bring him over to the computer, where the readout advises the immediate stoppage of the drilling. Stalman ignores the readout and again saying that he knows better, and then informs the doctor that he can no longer access the power for the reactor, as it will be all needed for his plan to increase the drill speed. Stallman then tells Petra to carry out his instructions, but once she is gone, he notices his hands starting to change colour. In the control room, the doctor tells Liz to check on the TARS console to see if it needs any repairs, and he then surreptitiously turns the power back on to the shed. While he is doing this, Stallman manages to take the control circuit out of the computer and takes it into his office so he can destroy it. However, the doctor arrives and stops him, and then uses a Venusian karate technique to immobilise Stallman when he tries to attack him. The Brigadier arrives and tells him to let Stallman go, who then demands that the Brigadier expel him from the complex. The Doctor tries to show Stallman sabotage by demanding he empty his pockets, but there is no sign of the circuit, and so the Doctor leaves, pointing out that the computer is already malfunctioning. However, after he goes, Stallman goes to where he secretly dropped the circuit and then crushes it underfoot. The Doctor goes back to the shed where Liz has finished her repairs, and she comments that without power, he won't be able to take any more test runs. The Doctor then asks her to go back to the complex to run some calculations through the computer, 
and once she is gone, he starts to prepare for a test run. She arrives back at the complex, and the brigadier tells her that it looks like the doctor sent her on a wild goose chase. Liz, realising what is happening, rushes back to the shed with the brigadier. Stallman notices the power drain and switches off the power to the shed. Liz and the brigadier arrive back at the shed, just in time to see the doctor and the console vanish along with Bessie. Episode 3 Liz turns off the power station, but realises that Stallman has turned off the power from the main console in the control room. The brigadier then asks to be filled in on what's going on, and once Liz does so, the two of them head back to the control room to confront Stallman. They inform him of the doctor's disappearance and request that he turn the power back on, but he refuses, being delighted that the doctor is now out of his way. Sir Keith tries to get Stallman to be reasonable and threatens to complain to the Ministry of Science. However, Stallman confidently states that the Ministry will be on his side due to the potential gains made by his project. He then leaves, again refusing Liz's plea to turn back on the power. Sir Keith informs the duo that he intends to go to the Ministry, but says that he can't go until he's finished some work at the complex, lest Stallman use it as a way to discredit him. Liz and the Brigadier then discuss everything that has occurred, and the Brigadier says that all that, coupled with Stalman's disregard for safety, has him very worried. Elsewhere, Stalman places a glove over his completely green hand. Petra enters after he puts it on, and suggests that he go to a doctor, but he ignores her and tells her to carry on with her work. The doctor wakes up on the shed, but he notices that things are not quite right. The shed is more organised than when he left it, and there is a poster of a man with the slogan, Unity is Strength, written on it. He takes out his sonic screwdriver to unlock the doors, but discovers that it doesn't work, and so he opens it manually. Outside, things seem to be normal, but he notices that a placard on the door now reads, Technical Stores, and there is a strange symbol of a white background emblazoned with an upwards arrow pointing with two smaller arrows pointing away from it. He drives Bessie out into the complex and is shot at by a soldier. He drives away as the soldier continues to fire at him, and the soldier is then joined by someone who looks like Benton, wearing a different uniform to his unit one who then raises the alarm. The doctor speeds through the complex, avoiding the gunfire of the soldiers that try to stop him. He enters a dead end, and one of the soldiers manages to board Bessie, but the doctor manages to throw him off as he speeds off in a different direction. He stops near a group of buildings and hides inside a, a nearby bin to let the soldiers slip by before he makes his way up into the gangway above the fuel stores. From his vantage point, he observes the soldiers trying to find him, and he suddenly hears an animalistic growl behind him, and he turns to see the technician, who is now turned into a creature much like the one that Slocum did. He picks up a nearby fire extinguisher and uses it on a creature as it charges at him, causing it to collapse unconscious onto the gangway. The soldiers spot the commotion and start to make their way towards the fuel tanks, forcing the doctor to climb higher. He reaches the top of a nearby snorehouse and there encounters Wyatt, wearing the same uniform as Benton and the others. The doctor holds him off with a pipe and then the soldiers shoot him when he nears the ledge, causing him to plummet to his death. The doctor then sneaks back down to ground level where he encounters a brunette woman who looks like Liz, wearing an officer's uniform. The doctor demands to know what is going on, but she pulls a gun on him and orders him to put up his hand while she whistles for aid. The doctor is brought into the complex and is taken to the brigadier's office, but is shocked to see that he no longer has his moustache and that there is a scar running down one side of his face with an eye patch covering the empty socket. The man identifies himself as Brigade Leader Stewart and demands to know who he is and how he got into the complex. The doctor starts to question him, but stops, thinking that he knows what has occurred, and instead gives his alias as John Smith. He then announces that he came from a parallel dimension, but Liz, known here as Section Leader Shaw, thinks he is mad, but Stuart thinks he is merely acting mad to trick them. The doctor is intrigued by the scenario, but Stuart demands he answer his questions, and so the doctor asks about Stalman and Sir Keith and how far the project has progressed. 
He asks to see either of them, and so Stuart takes him to see the director. En route, he notices the drill clock reads 3 hours and 22 minutes, placing it 46 hours ahead of the drill in his own dimension. He is introduced to Stalman and Petra, who is addressed as Dr. Williams here, and they inform him that Sir Keith died 24 hours ago as he was making his way to report Stalman to the Ministry. The doctor then questions about the broken computer, and Stalman orders him to be taken away, saying that he is responsible for the sabotage. Sutton's counterpart, who seems to be a more straight-laced version in this dimension, highlights his concerns to Dr. Williams about the safety of the project as it enters a critical stage, but she rebukes him when he addresses her in an informal fashion. However, she does talk to Stalman about the safety concerns, but he ignores them, saying that they are too close to their objective not to stop. He then goes off to the side where he discovers that his metamorphosis has grown worse. In Stewart's office, the doctor is told that he is to be shot in accordance with the defence of the Republic, which came into effect after the overthrow and execution of the royal family in 1943. The doctor tries to warn them of the dangers of what is happening, but Stewart says that he is only incriminating himself further. The doctor tries to convince him that he is telling the truth about his origin, but Stewart says that he will eventually tell them what they want under interrogation. He then leaves and is met by Shaw, who tells him that none of their sources have been able to identify the doctor. They go back into the office and demand he tell them what they want or they will execute him immediately, but he instead tells them to fix the computer so that they can see the warning signs it was giving off in his own world. Out in the drill room, Dr. Williams informs Stalman and Sutton about a leak coming from the outflow pipe, but an alarm suddenly goes off. Stuart and Shaw leave to go investigate, and once they are gone, the doctor uses a Venusian crashy technique to incapacitate Benton, allowing him to escape. In the drill room, the ooze leaks from the pipe as everyone attempts to fix the coolant system, with some of the panicking technicians being held at gunpoint. Stalman spots the doctor trying to fix the computer, and he alerts Benton, who points his gun at the doctor, telling him to come outside to the firing squad, or he will kill him where he stands. Episode 4 Shaw stops Benton from shooting the doctor and demands to know what is going on. The doctor thanks her as he can now repair the computer. He installs a new control circuit and it immediately begins producing a data stream on the current situation. Stalman arrives with Dr. Williams and tells them that they have no need for the computer as his calculations are more accurate, but Sutton demands that they see what the computer says. The doctor informs them that the extreme heat and pressure is proving to be too much for the drill head and he suggests that they reverse the process in order to alleviate the stress. Stalman is against the idea, but Sutton says it is the only option they have, short of stopping the drill completely. The doctor says that if they pour all the coolant into the outlet pipe and suck up the debris through the inlet pipes, they can avert disaster. Stalman reluctantly gives the order for them to go ahead and demands that the doctor be removed. Shaw and Benton take him to Stewart's office and he again tells them about his own dimension. Shaw highlights the different career paths that she and Liz have taken, but the doctor points out that she shares the same interests as Liz as their paths diverged at a previous point in time. With that in mind, he tries to convince her to use her own scientific acumen to realise the danger that they are all in. Outside, Sutton reports to Dr. Williams that the process seems to be working, but they will need to decrease the drill speed to get it going forward. Williams says that Stalman will object to it, but Sutton goes off on a rant about Stalman's ego and the nature of the Republic fully aware that he will most likely be killed as a dissident once the project is over. William says that his death would be a serious waste of potential, and Sutton storms off into the drill room. Stalman arrives there and tells him that he wants to increase the drilling rate, threatening to have him disposed of if he does not follow his orders. He then leaves and takes shelter in an alcove as he suddenly clutches his head in agony. 
Shaw receives a call that the danger has passed for now and congratulates the doctor, who quips that they can give him a posthumous award. Shaw seems confused by his cavalier attitude, but he then grows more serious when he says that the danger is still present and if they continue drilling, they will make things worse. However, his words fall on deaf ears as he is led away for interrogation. In the interrogation room, Shaw and Stewart subject him to a barrage of questions, but he refuses to crack and insists that he arrived by accident from a parallel dimension. They take a break from the questioning, and, he, and as he is recovering, the doctor hears the increased rev speed of the drill. He tries to get up, but he's held down, and the questioning starts again, just as Stallman arrives. The doctor comments on Stallman's gloves, and tells Stewart to get him to take them off. Stallman does so to reveal a heavenly bandaged hand, and the doctor tries to convince him that Stallman is infected, but Stewart orders Benton to take him to the cells, with Shaw being sent to supervise. After they leave, Stewart and Stallman get into an argument about the security of the facility, which Stallman says is compromised. He leaves, demanding that the doctor be killed at the end of the day. In the cells, the doctor notices a body under some blankets in the cell adjoining his, and Benton informs him that the prisoner was tranked when he became hostile. Shaw starts to question the doctor again, and Benton asks to be allowed to question him when he refuses to answer. However, Shaw tells him to wait outside, and once they are alone, she takes a softer approach by saying that she doesn't think he is a spy, but instead a member of one of the numerous free speech groups protesting the Republic government. The doctor sticks to his story, and she leaves, saying that she can't do anything for him. Once he is alone, he tries to strike up a conversation with the other prisoner, but his questions go unanswered, and so he turns over to go to sleep, failing to notice a green fur-covered hand appear from beneath the blanket. Back in the Prime Dimension, the Brigadier tells Liz that his men haven't been able to find the Doctor anywhere, and Liz says that he is lost somewhere in space or time. The Brigadier confidently says that he'll be able to take care of himself, but she doesn't seem as confident as him. In the control room, Sir Keith gives one last plea to Stallman to take more precautions, or he will report his negligence to the Minister. Stallman refuses, having come to the belief that Sir Keith wants the project stopped completely, and tells him that the Minister will back him up instead. The Brigadier and Liz arrive and wish Sir Keith well in his conversation with the Minister. They inform him about the Doctor's disappearance and he says that it may be for the best as he shares the Doctor's concerns about the ominous air of the project. Back in the parallel dimension, the Doctor hears the growls from the prisoner and calls for the guards who enter the cell to deal with the prisoner. However, the prisoner who is revealed to be this dimension's version of the infected technician beats him to death and then bends the bars connecting the two cells so he can attack the Doctor. The doctor uses his mattress to fend off the technician, allowing him to slip through the gap in the bars and out the open cell door, which he locks behind him. He makes his way out into the complex, avoiding the patrols, and climbs into the back of a Land Rover as it drives off. Inside the complex, the drill is approaching the penetration point, and Sutton says that the computers give you off increased warning signs, but no one seems to be paying any attention. Meanwhile, the doctor manages to sneak into the facility after wearing a radiation suit he found in the back of the Land Rover. He blows his cover though when Stuart spots him at the computer readout station and tells him that they need to stop immediately, saying that if they break through the crust then they will unleash a terrible force. Suddenly, the air is filled with a high-pitched whine, which the doctor says is the planet screaming out in rage. Stallman orders Stuart to shoot him, but Sutton intervenes, telling the doctor to escape. However, he is cornered by the guards and he turns to see Stallman pick up Stuart's gun and aim it at him. Episode 5 the drill penetrates the crust, causing everyone to fall to the floor, and several explosions to occur outside in the complex grounds. Several technicians flee, and Stuart orders his men to pursue them. Sutton starts putting on protective gear in order to try and cap the drill shaft, 
and he notices Slamon about to enter the drill room, telling him to stop it as it's too dangerous. The doctor cryptically tells him that Slamon isn't affected by the heat the same way that they are, and Sutton goes to try and cap the hole. Stalman enters wearing protective gear and attacks Sutton, removing his helmet to try and expose him to the dangerous fumes in the room. The doctor intervenes and attempts to fight Stalman, but he is easily overpowered and nearly strangled by him before Sutton regains consciousness and hits Stalman with a pipe. The doctor helps the weakened Sutton out of the room where they are met by Shaw and Dr. Williams, who are taken aback by Stalman's behaviour. Sutton says they need to go back in in order to turn the coolant valve to flood the drill shaft, but the shutters of the room suddenly close, locked from inside by Stallman, who has begun to take some of the unconscious technicians inside the room and expose them to the ooze bubbling up from the drill shaft. The doctor asks about the strength of the walls from the drill room, but after Sutton says that they were built to withstand an atomic blast, he says that it won't be enough. Stewart returns and announces that the technicians and the majority of his men have fled from the complex, but he says it will do them little good as reports are coming in of seismic disturbances from all over the country. Stewart has been placed in command of the complex by the government, and Sutton says that he should listen to the doctor. However, the doctor defeatedly tells them that this world will be completely destroyed in a matter of days. Suddenly, the infected technician from the jail arrives and tries to get into the drill room, and Stewart shoots him, but to no effect forcing the doctor to rescue him by using a fire extinguisher on the technician, killing him in the process. Sutton tells them that he intends to leave with Williams, but Stuart and Shaw order him to stay. Benton arrives and Stuart orders him and the remaining men to guard the facility, ensure no one leaves. Williams tries to repair the computer, whose circuits are fused due to the initial heat blast, saying that if she can fix it, that they might give them a solution that the doctor missed. However, the whole system needs to be repaired, and Williams says that they will need to wait for repair crews and equipment, but Sutton tells her that she is in denial and that they have been abandoned by the government. Williams breaks down and Sutton consoles her and says that they should try to escape. In Stewart's office, Stewart, Shaw and the Doctor listen to a radio broadcast reporting the widespread devastation and the Doctor asks Shaw to have him return to his own world so he can stop the same thing from happening there. Stewart says he will accompany them to the hut with the TARDIS and as they leave, he tells Williams and Sutton to remain. In the hut, Stewart and Shaw are sceptical of the TARDIS console and asks for a demonstration to prove that it works. The Doctor reluctantly agrees, knowing it will drain the remaining power supply, and travels a few seconds into the future. Stuart then says that if he had power, then he could take people back with him to the other dimension, but the Doctor says that he can't, as it would create an infinitesimal paradox that would shatter every universe. Back in the facility, Williams hears Stallman calling for her over the PA system, and she calls Sutton over just as the Doctor and the others return. Together, they all listen as Stallman tells her to raise the blast shutters, but as he speaks, they hear his voice take on the growling nature caused by the infection, but the doctor seems to be the only one to notice it. Stewart stops him from uh, interfering as Williams opens the shutter locks and Stallman lifts it with ease. He then takes off his protective helmet to reveal his full transformation into a green-skinned, fur-covered creature. He summons the technicians, who have all been similarly transformed, into the control room where they surround the exits. Stuart calls out a warning to Benton as he arrives, but it is no use, and he is captured by the creatures, who hold him as Stalman smears his face with the ooze. The Doctor uses the distraction to tear out the wiring controlling the blast shutters, lowering them in order to cut the creatures off from the heat source from the drill shaft. He tells everyone to make a break for Stuart's office, telling Sutton to leave Benton there as there is nothing that they can do for him as he begins to transform. In the other dimension, Sir Keith is being driven back from London, and his driver informs him that they have taken a different route to avoid traffic. Sir Keith tries to use the car phone to inform Stallman that the project has been suspended pending a full investigation. 
He then realizes that his driver has been ordered by Stallman to stop him from getting back, but the driver, now aware of the Ministry's decision, agrees to take him back to the complex. He turns in his seat to apologize to Sir Keith, who calls out a warning as the car begins to veer into an oncoming vehicle. Back in the parallel dimension, Stuart reveals the existence of the TARDIS console and tells the others of the Doctor's plan, snidely saying that they are all to be left behind. However, the others all agree to help the Doctor, but as the Doctor begins to explain his plan to escape the control room, the creatures start to break in through the door. Episode 6 The Doctor tells everyone to keep clear as he uses the fire extinguisher to drive the creatures away. He tells them that they only have about 10 minutes before the creatures recover and attack again and that they need to use that time to reconnect the nuclear power reactor supply to the console. William says that in an emergency the power from the reactor goes to minimal and in order to get it back to full power they will need to reset the system and then activate the master switch. Sutton says that the creatures are between them and the switch but the doctor says that they can use fire extinguishers to keep them at bay. When Shaw says that they can't use it indefinitely, Sutton remembers that he rigged the coolant system so that it can be used via a hose. They make a break for it, and Stuart uses a fire extinguisher to keep Stallman and the creatures at bay while Sutton tries to unlock the coolant hose. The extinguisher runs out just as Sutton gets the hose going, and the doctor tells the others to go outside whilst he repairs the damaged master switch under Sutton's protection. Once outside, Stuart says they need to escape, but Shaw and Williams refuse to leave without the others. As he is working on the repairs, Sutton asks the Doctor how he intends to avert the same disaster in his world, and he says that Sir Keith should be able to help him. In the Prime Dimension, the Brigadier is getting annoyed that no one has been able to contact Sir Keith, and his anger is further raised when Benton enters, telling him that Stalman has refused to come to the office as requested. He angrily orders Benton to drag Stalman back with him if he has to. Benton, in fact, does that, much to Stallman's chagrin, but the Brigadier cuts him off mid-rant to inform him about Sir Keith's disappearance. Stallman makes light of it, saying that he is probably too embarrassed to return after his protests were shot down by the Ministry. The Brigadier, acting on Sir Keith's worries, formally requests the suspension of the drilling until he has been located, but Stallman refuses. In the shed, Liz is trying to find some way to bring the Doctor back when she notices someone trying to get in. She opens the doors and is greeted by Sutton, who admits that his curiosity about the TARDIS and the Doctor's disappearance got the better of him. He then tells Liz about the disappearance of Sir Keith. Back in the other dimension, the Doctor finishes the repairs and together he and Sutton flee outside to join the others. The atmosphere has started to feel the effects of the cracking of the Earth's mantle, with the sky now an angry red colour as the heat increases. They all climb into Bessie to make their way to the reactor building. William says that she needs to reroute the electrical system in order to boost the power to the hut, but promises to be as fast as possible. The Doctor tells Shaw and Stuart to stay with her, whilst he and Sutton go to the TARDIS console to get it ready. As they leave, an earthquake starts, signalling that time is running out. After they leave, Stuart badgers Williams to hurry up, but she stands up to him, saying that his bullying isn't helping matters. He then goes to Shaw and quietly states his intentions to force the Doctor to save the two of them. He then begins to panic due to the earthquakes and the explosions hitting the complex, and Shaw tells him that the Doctor won't take them. He then says that he will kill the Doctor after he forces him to instruct William on how to operate the TARDIS. Outside, the creatures have recovered from the effects of the coolant and begin to make their way out into the complex. The Doctor and Sutton arrive at the hut and begin to rig up the connection with the power console. Sutton tells him that due to the expected power boost, the fuse will most likely blow after a few seconds, but the Doctor reassures him that it is all he'll need. They finish rigging up the console just as Williams finishes rerouting the power, but nothing happens when she pulls the lever, and she despairingly says that she'll have to check the wiring again. 
However, as she begins to do so, Salma enters the room from the rear entrance and Stuart tells them to flee as he shoots him. They flee towards the hut, falling to the ground multiple times due to the earthquakes, but eventually they arrive and Williams informs the doctors that she failed. The doctor and Sutton thank her for the attempts, but Stuart mocks their attitude and begins to mentally break down. Sutton confronts him over his cowardly attitude and Stuart tries to shoot him, but he has no bullets left. The two then engage in a fist fight, with Sutton easily defeating Stuart. The doctor tells them to stop as their fighting is pointless, and Shaw says that Williams went back to the reactor building to try and get it working. Sutton goes after her and tells the doctor, who was also attempting to go, to stay behind in case the power goes back on. Sutton arrives at the reactor room and uses an extinguisher to protect Williams from a reviving Stallman. She manages to get the power running again, and together they head back to the hut. They arrive back just as Stuart threatens the doctor with his reloaded pistol and demands he take them with him. A demand that the doctor again says he sadly cannot give in to. The others try to get him to stop, but in the end, Shaw is forced to shoot him in order to let the doctor go. The drill shaft then erupts, signalling the death throes of the planet as the more natural disasters occur. Sutton holds on to Williams, and along with Shaw, they watch as lava from the drill shaft begins to stream towards them, with the doctor desperately trying to activate the Clarence console. Episode 7 Liz enters the shed and sees the unconscious body of the Doctor beside Bessie and the TARDIS console. She calls out for help and Benton appears, amazed to see the Doctor back. Liz tells him to go and alert the Brigadier. Inside the control room, Stallman says that he intends to increase the drilling speed again and mocks Petra's statements about them currently exceeding the safety limits. He tells her to carry out his instructions and after he leaves, Sutton comes over and Petra tells him about Stallman's behaviour, saying that he no longer listens to her. Sutton suggests a double-sided approach, and after Petra leaves to speak with Stallman again, Sutton overhears Benton inform the Brigadier of the Doctor's return. Inside the drill room, Petra again tries to get through to Stallman, and he suddenly goes into a strange trance as he hears a ringing sound in his head. Sutton arrives and tries to make him see the danger as well, but he again slips into the trance before suddenly departing. Sutton follows on shortly afterwards, informing him of of the inadequate repair job done by Slocum. Stallman thinks he is coming up with another excuse to stop the drilling and the two get into an argument, with Sutton reaching his limits and saying that he will leave instead of potentially dying. He tries to get Petra to come along with him, but he then decides to stay when she asks him to because of the growing mutual attraction between the two of them. In the shed, Liz confirms for the Brigadier that the Doctor is alive, but he seems to be in some sort of coma, and says that they can't risk moving him to a hospital. When the Brigadier says he requires medical attention, Liz points out her own medical knowledge and says that she will look after him. Suddenly, alarms from the drill room go off and the Brigadier calls through to the control centre. As he is being given information, the doctor starts to mutter in his coma about the output pipe blowing, echoing the information the Brigadier has just received. He then mutters about reversing the drill as was done in the other dimension, and Liz tells the Brigadier to keep an eye on him whilst she goes to the drill room. In the control room, Stallman tells everyone to get back to work as it's only a minor fault and again ignores Sutton's concerns. Liz arrives and mentions the doctor's theory and Sutton echoes his other dimensional counterpart's statement that it would avert the immediate disaster. After a momentary pause, Petra leads them to the drill controls and they throw the system into reverse. Stallman appears and then confronts Petra over her treachery. Liz returns to the shed where the doctor starts to come to, telling the brigadier his moustache suits him better. Liz asks him about his trip, and he vaguely references the events in the parallel dimension. He asks about the progress of the drilling, but they are interrupted by the arrival of Sir Keith, whose arm is now in a sling. 
Sir Keith informs the Brigadier of what happened, but as they are talking, they hear the Doctor mumbling about the differences between the two dimensions, and the existence of Sir Keith means that they can avoid the same fate that befell the parallel dimension. The Doctor stops the Brigadier from calling for medical assistance, and leads them back to the control room, where he demands that the drilling be stopped. When Stallman refuses, and no one listens to him, the Doctor picks up a wrench and begins to smash the drill controls in an attempt to stop it. The Brigadier stops him, and orders Benton to take him away to the infirmary. As the doctor is being led away, he calls out to Liz to look for the control circuit to fix the sabotage computer. Sir Keith then confronts Stallman about his instructions to the driver and then informs him that he is to face the hearing from the ministry, but Stallman ignores him and goes back to the drill room. Petra reports to him that the automatic control of the drill will activate in 49 minutes and he tells her to increase the heat in the room as he feels cold. He then goes into the trance-like state again and when the other technicians stare at him, he orders them all to leave. After he is alone, he clutches his head in pain as he closes the blast shutters and slathers himself in the ooze, which begins to emerge from the drill shaft, causing him to fully transform into one of the creatures. Outside, the doctor apologizes to the men escorting him as he uses Venusian karate to temporarily immobilize them so that he can escape. He climbs up onto one of the fuel tanks to avoid them, and he encounters the infected technician, but manages to fend him off with a fire extinguisher. He then returns to the control room as Liz reads the warning message from the newly repaired computer. They begin to inform him of Stallman's erratic behaviour when the blast shutters suddenly open and Stallman charges out. The Brigadier shoots him as he goes to attack the Doctor, smashing a chair over him, but the Doctor recovers long enough to use an extinguisher on him with Sutton following suit. After the incapacitation, the Doctor tells Petra to begin the shutdown process. However, the drill was not designed to stop immediately due to a series of buffer controls and the Doctor and Sutton go to deactivate them, but they discover that Stallman has sabotaged them. They manage to repair them, and they stop the drill with only 35 seconds remaining before the drill reaches the penetration point. The doctor then suggests to Sir Keith to have the holes filled in immediately. He and Liz then return to the shed, where they go back to working on the TARDIS console to the tune of the doctor singing Shine On Martian Moods. Later on, Sir Keith and the Brigadier arrive and inform them that the whole complex is being shut down. He asks about Petra and Sutton, and he is informed that they have returned to London together, to which he smiles happily. Sir Keith then departs and informs the Doctor that he still has temporary access to the reactor for some test flights. Liz and the Brigadier try to dissuade him, with the Brigadier commenting that the TARDIS has caused quite a bit of trouble due to the Doctor's disappearance. The Doctor, insulted by the Brigadier's comments, prepares for a test flight. He says goodbye to Liz, saying that he will miss her, but says he can no longer stand the Brigadier, labelling him a pompous, self-important idiot. He and the TARDIS console disappear, and Liz berates the Brigadier, who comments on the Doctor's touchy nature. As the Brigadier is reminding Liz that she is still a serving member of the unit, they hear the, the Doctor return and turn to see him with his clothes stained. He tells them that he, he only managed to travel a few hundred yards east, which Liz laughingly realises was the complex's rubbish tip. The Doctor then embarrassingly asks the Brigadier for some help to retrieve the console. When the Brigadier mentions the Doctor's previous comments, the Doctor tells him that they shouldn't hold a grudge after all their years of friendship, and he leads him away as Liz looks on and laughs. End of the story. After a very explosive finale to <laughs> the current season story, we're now going to take our lovely usual trip to the trivia spot. So what have you got for us this week? Cool. So trivia for Inferno. Air date for the story, 9th of May to 20th of June, 1970. 
The writer for the story is Don Houghton. This is the first of two Doctor Who writing credits for Don. We will see his work again in The Mind of Evil. And actually, his wife, uh, Pixen Lim, plays Captain Chin Lee in The Mind of Evil, while their daughter, Sarah Houghton, plays Dr. Samantha Madigan in the Sarah Jane Adventures story, The Curse of Clyde Langer. Cool. It's a brilliant story. It really is. Don himself passed away in 1991. The director for the story is Douglas Campfield. He's the credited director, though Barry Letts did do a lot of the directing, though he goes uncredited. This is the ninth story out of 11 that Dougie has contributed to. We previously saw his work in An Unearthly Child, where he did little bits with Loris. Mm-hmm. Planet of the Planet of Giants, where he did a little bit with Mervyn. The Crusade. The Chase, where he did the the montage <laughs> at the end. <laughs> the Time Meddler, the Daleks Master Plan, the Web of Fear, and the Invasion. We'll see Dougie's work again in Terror of the Zygons and Seeds of Doom. Hi, Dougie. In terms of why Barry had to step in for some of the filming, it wasn't just a case of like, usually it's like, oh, it was Barry maybe directing the next episode, so he maybe filmed the finale or something like that. It wasn't that. Um, Dougie actually had a heart attack after completing the location studio scenes for episodes one and two. This left it to Barry to basically complete the studio scenes for the remaining five episodes. So he done Dougie had done all of location Mm-hmm. And Barry was left to do the studio scenes for episodes three, four, five, six, and seven. He did say, though, that particularly for episode three, Dougie was so meticulous in his preparations that he literally didn't have to do anything. He just literally followed what Dougie had written. But for the other episodes, he kind of had to work his own plans, which he had to sort of build quite quickly to match up with what Dougie had filmed on location. And like, it's... I'll tell you one thing, like finding that out, like you, you would never know because like, there are certain things all right now that, you know, like if two directors are in the chair, you know, mm. one takes over from the other, you can easily tell there's a huge difference in the style. Yeah. No, I'm very to Barry. Like he, he kept it fairly true to mm. what Dougie had done for the first few episodes. And I imagine having that very clear outline for episode three probably really helped in, you know, getting the tone and everything else correct for the other episodes. Mm. Working titles for the story. The Molehole Project. Operation Molebore. The Molebore or Project Inferno. They fucking suck. <laughs> yeah. Project Inferno isn't too bad, but Inferno on its own is better. I think Inferno on its own is way more sinister than Project Inferno. Because, <laughs> yeah. it yeah, it just kind of takes us a small bit out of it, I think. This is the only season finale in the Third Doctor era not to be written by Robert Sloman. And this is the first story in which Barry Letts had any say on development and commissioning. So the way it usually works with Who is stories are ordered in advance. And so often when you have a producer changeover, there's usually a number of stories already in the pipeline before that producer can really put his mark on it so usually they'll maybe put their mark on things on the day like maybe how a character works or maybe like you know we said that barry had a couple of very important things like with the silurians that barry wanted to be this way in particular but the stories are already chugging along by that Mm. point you almost see this when barry eventually leaves the first season after barry 
they're still Barry Letts stories yeah. as such. <laughs> and Philip doesn't really get a say until a bit later on. So this is the first one that Barry actually commissioned properly himself. Plus as well, like there's a definite difference in style between Philip and Barry. Oh yeah. And yeah. when we get to that point, it'll be very obvious. Very obvious. Houghton, our writer, uh, based the drilling part of the story actually on real events. Uh, he had contacted the American embassy to find out about Project Mohol, which was a real attempt to drill through the Earth's core. Or drill through the Earth's crust, rather. Not through the Earth's core, that'd be fucking mental. Um, information on the project and why it was abandoned was never disclosed. And so it was this secrecy that sort of gave him the idea for the story that he came up with, which I think is really cool. I like when stories are sort of like inspired by real events or like when a writer clearly took a real event and went, can you imagine what that would have been and build out their own story? Because it just probably will just add to the whole hollow earth lizard people theory. Yeah. Why, why, why was it abandoned? Barry was really worried when the first script draft came through because he didn't think that there was enough to fill a seven parter. So that's where things like the Primords, which is what the green furry people were called. Yeah. Uh, that's where they came from. And the Venusian Karate, which will later be renamed into Venusian Aikido. Mm-hmm. They were added to sort of lengthen the script a bit. <laughs> just, to, just to fill that extra little bit. I don't think, I think the Primords added a lot. I don't think the Venusian stuff added a lot. But <laughs> that, that adds probably, what, what, like a minute of total Maybe. screen time to the story. So the opening credits for the story are quite unique in that we have the opening title sequence and then the name and the story number are superimposed on footage of a lava flow and there is no music. Hmm. This is the last of these unique title cards. We saw something similar, not quite the same in the War Machines and the War Games. But this is the last story to have this unique title bit which i'm kind of sad about because i like the unique title bits i didn't like the way they did it last week because last week was weird yeah last week kind of takes you out of the story a small bit yeah but this it sort of adds to it now i do think maybe in episode one it kind of gives away what the story is going to be about <laughs> smidgen i oh, not necessarily like because if it kind of we get into it in the overall like but if you think about it okay okay you're drilling and the way that it's set up is it's going to be one of those big disaster movies and the likes of, you know, Earthquake or Towering Inferno, those kind of things. But then you bring in the Monster Menace of the Prime Wars and the Parallel Dimension side of things. Mm. Yeah, I suppose. Fair point. Um, the footage of the volcano we have mentioned before. Mm. Um, it was used in the Enemy of the World and it's also used in the Time Monster. So we get to see mirror universe versions, right? Yes. Quote unquote, mirror universe versions of some of our characters. So Caroline John loved playing section leader Shaw. She said it was so much fun playing the baddie version of Liz that she almost hated the scenes where she had to play the goody version of Liz because they were so boring in comparison. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that she didn't like, though, was the scene where... Uh, Section Leader Shaw shoots Brigade Leader Lethbridge Stewart. Caroline was pregnant and she didn't particularly want to do it. Which is why the shot now comes from off screen 
and we just see Shaw putting her gun back in the holster. Caroline didn't actually do anything. But that's why, because it's it's cut a little bit weird when you're watching it. Yeah. Because like, where did the shot come from? Then you just see Shaw putting her gun back. Um, but Caroline didn't want to do it. Um, no, was it because, like, and it, did she say it was because of the fact that she was pregnant and she didn't want to be on screen? Or was it she just didn't feel I think it was just she wasn't comfortable with it. All right. Do you know? Like handling a gun. Mm-hmm. Even if it's shooting blanks or whatever, she just yeah. didn't feel comfortable with it. Well, I suppose which is, like, which is understandable. A, bit, a bit of a kickback to it, I suppose, yeah. Yeah. Nick, Nick Courtney, he also loved playing his parallel version. <laughs> and he said it was his favorite um, in an interview that he did back in 2009. <laughs> he loved it so much that he would go on about when he does the spinny around bit in the chair. Yeah. Right? Which is like a total James Bond villain reveal. It's yeah. so funny. Particularly because he sits like way back in the chair. Like, yeah. you know, you know the thing like where someone's trying to pretend that they're like a thumb to take a picture. Yeah. He's like doing that. Um, and apparently on one take, he spun around and all of the actors and crew were all wearing eye patches. <laughs> <laughs> so he did the entire scene as if nothing unusual had occurred. And apparently... I'm going to put an apparently asterisk on this. After Nick passed away, Mm -hmm. there was a story in Moffat's era where everyone was wearing eye patches. And apparently that was meant to honor Nick, who told that story so much that it just sort of became ubiquitously ubiquitously associated with Nick. Interesting. Hmm. I'm going to put a big asterisk on apparently because yeah, like I'm just kind of like I just find given uh, Stephen Moffat's comments about the classic era, yeah, I'm kind of going like that's the thing you take away to honor the guy is like the fucking eye patch story. Yeah, Fair not enough. like yeah, anything else. Yeah, <laughs> although it would, been, it would have been excellent to see everyone in that story wearing mustaches. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in the parallel Earth scenes, there is the image of. What is described as the British president, although Sutton does describe this person as a dictator yeah. rather than a president. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one framed in Brigade Leader's office. We see one in the hot slash shed that the doctor was working in. <laughs> the image used is actually the visual effects designer Jack Keane. Mm-hmm. And it was in homage to 1984 where the face of Big Brother was the head of television design, Roy Oxley. So it was a bit of an homage to that. And like, it's always like, I, I think, like you often find like when they do like the fascist uh, version mm. of like Britain, like say V for Vendetta or mm. anything like that, it, it's never di- dictator. It's always like your party leader or like your party secretary or like s- some yeah. non-dictator title that is totally yeah. a dictator. Yeah. And yeah. only Sutton in this story is ballsy yeah. enough to actually mention it. Mm-hmm. we mentioned last week uh, this is the final story to feature the original Cardiff's console um, mm-hmm. I was actually talking to the guys from some of the guys from Mission Log um, from the Mission Log Patreon group about this the other day this console was used since the very first episode in 1963 and it had deteriorated over time <laughs> numerous bits fell off had to be replaced and now they were seeing it in colour and black and white hides lots of sins. Mm-hmm. Color, not so much. So after this story, 
it was dismantled and junked. So the next time we see the TARDIS console, it'll be a brand new one. Mm-hmm. Depending on your opinion of the trial of a Time Lord, this could be the last story to be longer than six episodes. Because some people see Trial of a Time Lord as one big thing. Yeah, 12 episode story. Um, So this would be the last one. It's also the final Mm seven-parter. We don't have this anymore. Nope, we do not. And Paddy and I were discussing before we started getting into this part. Up until the 2005 episode Dalek, we think this is the story with the shortest title in terms of number of words and number of letters in that word. Wait, no, sorry, I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Robot. Oh, for fuck's sake, yeah, okay, yeah. never mind. Yeah. <laughs> Completely disregard that trivia. I'm going to leave this in because <laughs> yeah. you and I are fallible. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so there was a scene in the Brigadier's office where they were listening to a radio about the geological disasters. That was actually cut from the UK transmission of episode five. Because they felt the announcer was too obviously recognised as being John. (laughs) (laughs) Doing a funny voice. Yeah. Lastly, in terms of story notes here, we have... Originally, it was meant to be section leader Shaw that was to interrogate the Doctor in episode three. But Nick Courtney, Dougie Canfield and Barry Letts all thought that it should be the brigade leader. And Caroline was a bit miffed. I I can imagine so. Um, so before we go on to the casting list I just had a very strange thought right mm. is that this is possibly the weirdest season we've seen so far and probably will see for a very long time because it's so mixy matchy in the sense of Spearhead from Space shot entirely on film mm. Doctor Who and the Silurians the only story to be called Doctor Who and the because mm. of your death production fucko Ambassadors in Space of death. Sorry, Ambassadors of Death, who were technically in space, <laughs> um, had like the really weird intro sequence, you know, that mm. kind of, and obviously there's the whole thing about, you know, episodes being lost and coming back and so on. And then you got Inferno, which deals with, I think it's, you know, for a very, very long time, it's going to be the only one that deals with a parallel dimension. Mm. And yeah, so like it's just weird in the sense of like, you know, like, you know there's episodes without the there's single word titles it's the last single word title for a very long time so on and so forth you know it is very much a sort of throw everything at the board and see what sticks with the exception of the TARDIS itself yeah and see what sticks (laughs) Mm. so let's move on to our cast so we have mentioned him a few times he's come up in recaps we have John Benton we have John Levine (laughs) played by John Levine yeah um we have seen John as Benton before. He was mm-hmm. in The Invasion and The Ambassadors of Death. This is his first story where he actually has like a main chunk yeah. of talking and stuff to do. Mm-hmm. Prior to his appearance as Benton, though, he was in Doctor Who before that. He was in the Moon Base as a Cyberman and he was in the Web of Fear as a Yeti. Mm-hmm. He would go on to appear as Benton in 16 stories in total. And he also had his own direct-to-video sort of unofficial spin-off called Wartime which me and Paddy both own I haven't watched it yet it is so good it is creepy as fuck because it's a completely it's a complete amateur movie it's a short movie mm. about like 15-20 minutes long it's complete amateur 
uh, I think it's one of the first of the spin-off mm. uh, media made for the show. And again, it's done entirely by fans. Uh, and obviously it's got like John's got Michael Wisher as um, his father. Mm. And yeah, like it's so good. So now, we will probably do a rambling on that at some point. Yeah, I don't know if we'll do all of the spinoffs because there's a lot of fan made spinoffs in the same idea as Wartime. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we'll do all of them. We'll definitely do Wartime because we love John and we love Benton so much. Yeah, we'll definitely do Downtime because that was an official spinoff that was made by the BBC, and we'll definitely do Canine and Company because again that was yeah. an official spinoff pilot made by the BBC. Yeah, a lot of the other ones we'll sort of see. Uh, yeah. Time permitting. Outside of who, John also appeared in Paul Temple, Zed Cars, Automatons, Beetleborgs, and Adam Adam and Libs. And I am such like I I was such a fucking John Levine Benton nerd. I actually track. I, I downloaded the specific episode of Beetleborgs that he's in. <laughs> I would say that I'm such a John Levine Benton nerd that I legit squeed when i got to meet him in london a few years ago yeah because he is so nice he's like the smiliest person ever and him and um oh my god i've forgotten his name who does K9? Oh, john leeson john leeson yeah they were sat next to each other mm-hmm. and they were so chatting to the two of them together was so much fun i think that's like I think this is to delay us a bit further. That's part of the reason why I love the show so much is that because the people involved in it all seem to have like this genuine love of the show and mm. this genuine love of interacting with the fans. Oh, it's, yeah. It's great. Definitely. Greg Sutton is played by Derek Newark. This is the second and final appearance of Derek. We previously saw him in An Unearthly Child where he played Zah. Holy shit. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. Wow. This is how you know Paddy didn't read all of my notes. Because <laughs> sometimes Paddy reads the trivia as I'm talking. He clearly hadn't gotten this far. <laughs> Unrecognizable. Like, yeah. Like, I know that like, you say like some things are black and white. You can't really differentiate. Like, no, sorry. Just no. <laughs> His non-who credits include Dixon of Doc Green, Dad's Army, The Avengers, Only Fools and Horses, and some mothers do have him. Derek passed away in 1998. Petra is played by Sheila Dunn. This is her third role in Doctor Who. She also appeared in the Daleks' master plan as Blossom Lefebvre. I don't know if we discussed that character. I think that's episode seven. Oh. I think she's the actress on the Arabian Nights set. Uh, Oh, yeah. That makes sense. And she was also the computer voice in The Invasion. Wait, sorry. She's either the actress on the um, Arabian Nights set or she's a damsel in distress on the Snidely Whiplash kind of... Oh, set, you know, okay. where Stephen punches a guy. Either out. way, she's in that one. Yeah, so. she, she she's in the that episode. And she also did the computer voice in the invasion. She was actually married to Dougie, who directed all three of those stories. Ah, uh, so a little bit of favoritism, favoritism. maybe. <laughs> uh, her non-who credits include Harry Hill, Accident, Zed Cars, and The Bill. Sheila passed away in two thousand and four. Stallman is played by Olaf Pooley. This is his only Doctor Who acting credit. He did have a role in Voyager, Star Trek Voyager, back in 2000, making him one of the few actors to appear in both. The crossover between Doctor Who and Star Trek, not that big. No. Doctor Who and any other British thing, million miles long. Doctor Who and Star Trek, not so much. And I actually liked that episode. 
I don't know what episode it was. I watched very little of Voyager and I don't recall. The only episode that I recall specifically is Someone to Watch Over Me because it's one of my favorites. You know, this episode is Voyager is in orbit above a planet where time goes differently. So like Voyager is in orbit and for them it's like uh, a couple of days, whereas on the planet it's like millennia. And the legend of Voyager gets passed down and passed down and passed down. I I vividly remember this because I was trying to untangle Christmas lights as I was watching it. I will be interested when Mission Log gets this episode. Yeah. His other credits include Gravelhanger, The Adventures of Ben Gunn, Deadline Midnight, Dixon of Doc Green, and Scarecrow and Mrs. King. Olaf passed away in 2015. Lastly, as Sir Keith, we have Christopher Benjamin. This is the first of three appearances for Christopher. We'll see him again in The Tallings of Wen Cheyenne. And the unicorn and the wasp, which I didn't realize until I looked at his thing that he was in the unicorn and the wasp. <laughs> Confound you, Miss Christie. <laughs> <laughs> you rumbled me. <laughs> his non who credits include the Foresight Saga, the Prisoners, the Avengers, Paul Dark, the Return of Sherlock Holmes, and Pride and Prejudice. Uh, I am a huge fan of Christopher Benjamin in Doctor Who because uh, I love him as Jago in Wang Chiang. I love mm-hmm. him in Unicorn and the Wasp because I love both of those stories. But also, uh, Jago and another character in Wang Chiang, Professor Lightfoot, have their own Big Finish spin-off series. Oh, it's cool. like it's like a really cool Victorian mystery collection, mm-hmm. and it's phenomenal. I have like the first three seasons, and there's a lot more. And oh, it's so good! It's so good. <laughs> You'd love it. You really would. No. I would have to put it on my list. You should. Lastly, 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 we are saying goodbye to Liz Shaw. Now, people watching this show when it came out wouldn't have known we were saying goodbye to Liz Shaw, but she does not come back next season. So, why did Caroline leave? There are two sides to this story. The first side is the side that most people kind of cite which is that according to Barry Letts and Terence Dix in some ways, an essential part of the companion role is to ask the doctor questions and to be the insight for the viewer. So you're meant to ask a lot of questions as a companion that the doctor will answer, questions that the viewer would have. Barry, who inherited Liz from Derek Sherwin, considered that Liz was not a suitable character for that role. Basically, Liz was too smart. Hmm. She didn't have to ask the doctor things. She just did her own thing. And we kind of mentioned last week that Liz actually does a lot of the explaining while the doctor's off doing his own thing. So Mm -hmm. she was explaining stuff to the brig last year. So they ended up not renewing her contract, which means that Liz doesn't get a proper departure scene. She just is no longer there. And I don't know if we want to discuss it next week when we're discussing next week's story or if we want to mention it now. The way they describe why Liz isn't there anymore, I think it's a bit shit. Yeah, it's going to be in my um, summary because it's a it's a very it's a very odd exchange to explain mm. like um it's, you know, like when they, they write, write out certain characters from shows for whatever reason that the person doesn't come back. It's like, oh yeah, they did this. Yeah. But it kind of, it raises her up and shits on her at the same time. Yeah. 
we'll get to it next week. Um, I don't think it'll fit in with any of the characters discussion. We might just discuss it in overall next week, just as a yeah, as a final comment. Mm-hmm. The other side to the story, though, and I've already mentioned it, is Caroline was pregnant. So she probably would have had to resign anyway. Hmm. Um, so there's a little bit of confusion online whether she was told her contract wasn't being renewed first or whether she told Barry that she was pregnant first. Yeah. But either way, we probably wouldn't have had Liz in season eight regardless. But it's also like, I thought, like, I had, because we've been doing this now, you know, for a good while, like, you know, Mm. in the sense, I've had completely forgotten the very poor way that certain characters are written out of the show because of contract terminations Mm. or contract finishes. Like, uh, Vicky. The, yep. the, the the departure for that character is very lackluster and it's really hampered by the fact that it's a missing story. Yeah. But um Dodo was a bit shit. Dodo, uh, I cannot remember her name for the life of me. The Jackie Lane. Sorry, mm. Jackie Lane. Like like mid story and it's like because her contract is out, you re- you didn't renew the contract, you couldn't give her an extension for like two fucking episodes. Yeah. So she Ben and Polly disappeared from a story for a very yeah. long time, mm-hmm. and their leaving scene was pre filmed. Yeah, the thing about all of them though is that even if their character wasn't present, like in Jackie's case, mm-hmm. they did have a definitive goodbye. Goodbye, yeah, you know, yeah, you know, Jackie or dodo's was a message passed on by somebody else Mm -hmm. but it was still in that story yeah whereas with liz it's it's going to come up next season yeah because like you're it's literally a case of like the new companions here like who the fuck is this person yeah (laughs) where's my big pimp and liz (laughs) (laughs) caroline did reprise the role of liz though several times she was in the five doctors where like her her main line is just so funny stop him that's <laughs> so funny um she was in several special episodes like dimensions in time she also had her own like you know spin-off series type thing probe which i i, I mentioned before mm-hmm. and she also did the first seven seasons of big finishes companion chronicles so she did do a lot herself and the character of Lishaw lives on because her daughter daisy ashford is continuing to keep the character going with Big Finish. I have I've mentioned this before. I listened to one of her stories. Daisy is very good, and I will actually be making mention of it a little bit later on. If I am thinking of the right thing there now, and I have to just double check, so uh, forgive me. The first season of the Doctor Who Companion Chronicles, I think you know. I believe I've listened to it, hmm. and let me just double check. Um, yeah so i listened i listened to that and i nearly shat myself listening to it because i i, I was listening to liz's uh listening to liz's story and i was walking to work and at that time i was on the early shifts so i would walk at about five in the morning yeah. and you know my headphones on whatever the case may be listening and i got to a part where in the story like a cyberman just appears just mm. fucking boom and someone walked behind me and passed me i fucking jumped about a foot in the air <laughs> <laughs> and as far as i'm aware it's caroline reading it mm. so i again i was like ah, for fuck's sake. 
I haven't listened to much of the Companion Chronicle stuff. I like Big Finish has so much stuff, and oh, I'm 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 starting to get into it more and more. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm mainly doing like the newer releases, like the one like I said with Daisy in it. Mm-hmm. One interesting thing about Probe, though, yeah, and this is something that I love. In Probe, Liz is gay, or at the very minimum, bi. Ooh. And I'm like, okay then. Happy days. Happy days, Patricia. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's awesome. That's actually really kind of cool. Mm. That, that's kind of because you, you can kind of see it, like you know. Oh yeah. Uh, before we go, an interesting factoid about uh, Mr. Olaf Puli. Mm. He was over a hundred when he passed away. Oh wow. Yep. He's been one of the few Who actors, so who lived to over a hundred. Yeah. Remember we mentioned it way, way back. There was one actor who's still alive who's over a hundred. Um yeah, wow. Mm-hmm. The more you know. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know how to end it. <laughs> yeah, I was like, the more shalala. <laughs> So, thank you for giving us more to know about from the uh, <laughs> trivia spot. So, we're now going to go on to, uh, we had the discussion last week, is a part two, is a part three, whatever the hell it is. We're going to go on to the character discussion part of the podcast. Yeah, and this week things are going to be a little bit different. So, we have the Doctor. Yes. We have one supporting character in the form of Sir Keith. Yeah. But then everybody else, <sighs> because, like... Liz is a companion, mm-hmm. but section leader Shaw is a villain-ish. Well, and that's like, is she a villain? Is she a prominent character? Yeah. So we're going to do the Doctor. We'll do Sir Keith just as himself because he doesn't have a alternative counterpart. And then for the rest of the characters, we'll discuss their prime character and their alternate character. Yeah. And we'll just do them that way. Um. I think there's one person that we can agree is a villain in every universe, but we'll get to that when we get to that. <laughs> Benton! <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ! <laughs> oh, God. Oh. So we start off with the Doctor. So, Paddy, yes. I'll put it to you. What do you think of the Doctor this time around? So, I... First, first and foremost, a phenomenal performance by John. Phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We have a real showcase of how the exile on Earth is taking its toll on the Doctor. Mm. Like you know, this whole thing, I I feel like you know, like a like a castaway lost at sea, like you know, shipwrecked mariner, like just all these like wonderful poetic analogies. Um, and I think as a result of that, plus like obviously the situation that they're in, he is a he's a bit more of a hair trigger on his temperament in this story. Like he yeah. really doesn't suffer fools gladly. Like he's like very insulting. Like directly mm-hmm. insulting, like calling you know uh, Stalman names, um, which like we probably would have expected from you know Doc Bill, but oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, and you know at the very end, like you know his you know jab at the brigadier, mm-hmm. um, we also get to see like the man of action. So like this is like you know John Stock in trade, like you know the karate. We're going to see like the drive. You know, we've seen you know the Bessie driving. We're mm-hmm. going to see more of that. I'm really glad that they tried to they change it to Venusian Aikido. It just sounds better. Venusian Karate just sounds very hokey, Weird. hokey. Like, mm. um, 
like no when you pointed it out last week on like it's a thing now that like I'm having or even like week before like I'm having trouble not seeing it now mm. is he does trick Liz a lot yes he does yeah and like it's not like okay there's this you know this whole thing of like it's mostly from the revival era I think but mm. there's always this thing of like rule number one the doctor lies as like Okay, but like, this is just really outright taking advantage of using this is, your pro- this is rule, rule number one the doctor's a manipulative bastard. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like talk about like Operation Human Shield, you know, <laughs> just like it's Liz's fault, get her. Um, not a big fan of that, no. And the I suppose like the one, um, I was gonna say one of the best things about this uh performance from John comes in the last episode i think mm-hmm. is when he's talking about the death of the other dimension yeah and like he's like mania at trying to prevent the same thing happening here again like going at the thing with a bloody wrench to destroy the mm. computer and it just adds more layer it just adds another layer to the doctor because i don't think we've ever seen him get this angry to the extent of like you know he starts like bashing shit up you know um i don't I don't think we've ever seen this sort of blind mania yeah, that no. we see here. We've seen, like, Bill used to get frustrated. Yeah. But not to the sleep where he starts swinging his, like, staff yeah, like, or, would, yeah, or like, stick. If we think about it, what was the point in hitting the computer with a wrench? Yeah. That's not going to stop the function that that computer sent through. It's no. pure mania. It, it's it's a pure, like, you know, like, let's bash everything and see. Mm. Um, And one kind of little final note like his little smile when he finds out that Sutton and Petra have kind of gotten together. Like I, I just like, it's it's really nice. Mm. It, it's a nice send off to that story. I think. Yeah. For me, I think in this story we see the many sides of this Doctor. Mm. And I'm glad you mentioned how, um, he had the little smile about Petra and Greg, mm-hmm. um. Because that does show that he does have a caring side to him. However, this doctor, because of his isolation, we see a lot of his negative traits Mm. coming out here. His irritation with stupid people in leadership positions. Mm -hmm. That applies to Stallman. It applies to the Brig in some Mm. senses. His selfishness. His selfishness. Right, and then this is the thing. He's not there to help them with their drill. No, he is there to use their reactor, and he helps them with their drill as an excuse. Mm-hmm. So we see that in the sense that Stallman, for right or wrong, says you can't have any more power. No, cutting you off, flicking mm-hmm. the switch. You can't have any more. The doctor, without telling anybody flicks that switch back on for his personal reasons without taking into account the effect that would have on the project and the reactions that people would have. And that's incredibly dangerous. Yeah, It's dangerous to the project, it's dangerous to himself, and we see the impact that that has when they eventually flick the switch and cut the power. Mm-hmm. And that is very much that isolationist thing of he doesn't want to be there anymore and he will do anything to unlock the ability to go off again. Yeah. We see him use Liz again. 
oh Liz you know, and he the way he it's not even that he uses her it's that he lies to her oh I'm feeling fatigued can you just go have the computer run these numbers yeah basically go away so I can do something without you realising I'm doing it also you know what? it's a pretty shitty excuse like, it's just like you've just come from the computer <laughs> you've come from the computer also you're making her out to be a putz do you know, like she comes in and the brigadier's like, but he knows it's broken. Yeah. What are you on about? Um, and then we see it, that final piece, when he just takes out all of his frustration on the brig. Yeah. He calls him names and yeah, like they've had a troublesome relationship over the like four stories or whatever. But, you know, this guy did also house you and feed you and give you access to everything you needed yeah um so we get to see all of those facets of him what i actually really liked seeing and what i thought was really interesting for this story particularly because like we're now at the end of season seven we've had mm. how many stories this is story number 54 mm-hmm. his reaction to the alternative timeline i think yeah. is really good because mm-hmm. we this is a new concept for the show yeah and I love how he tried to find the hearts of the people he knew in these new versions that he was meeting. He does it with Benton. He tries to do it with Liz and or like with Benton and Shaw. And I love that because it shows that he did know these people, Do you know, mm. like in a story where he's quite frustrated a lot of the time. It shows that he does know and care for their prime counterparts. They're his friends, and like, see, this—it's very interesting because, like, I, I love all-star reality stuff, mm. and like, it's—it's it's always this kind of cool thing as to like, you know, just like how far, like, say, if you've got like a hundred different dimensions, like, you imagine them all kind of like stacked up in a line, mm. like, the further you go, obviously, the well, one theory is that the further you go, the greater the, the span of the differences, mm. uh, but like, he goes to this parallel world, which, if we do like a real world. Uh, time stamp we'll just say that this events are taking place in 1970 yeah. it's a 27 year difference since the royal family are overthrown and like mm. we we also get no word is that like oh, right is war did world war Two happen is that why like, there's some of this fascist elements did mm. world war Two not happen but it led to this kind of stuff mm. because if you think about it liz is it's very interesting to kind of like that he's banking on the fact that the liz that liz the brigadier and benton Mm. are going to be more or less like they still had that innate goodness that he knows mm. despite the fact that there's 27 years worth of a different regime programmed yeah. into them yeah. so I, yeah like it's a very very interesting concept to go at and it actually raises an interesting thing because liz comes across as someone in maybe her 30s mm-hmm. maybe mid 30s thereabouts mm, yeah early to mid i, I would say i'd say early, early yeah so if you imagine there's what 27 years mm-hmm she was a child yeah. when this regime came in. Benton would be the same. Yeah. If he was even born at all. No, but I think Benton is older than her. I, I would place Benton mm. as being older than her. Yeah, so they were both children. The Brigadier is older. Yeah. Right. Even just from the way he carries himself, we know that. So, you know, he came into this regime as an adult, whereas they were like inducted into it as children. Yeah. Which it's so interesting watching that. Yeah, but you can kind of think right if you if you go back again, like it's the brigadier was probably in the equivalent of like a, of a Hitler youth type thing, 
yeah. and then worked his way up. But obviously, he he still probably comes from that military family. So, mm. um, no, there there probably is like expanded media, be it big finish or whatever, mm. ab- about like the events in this parallel world. I would love to read it. Yeah, I think as well. I think John's doctor is the perfect doctor. John's doctor with his companions mm. of the Brig and Liz. And Benton is like the supporting character there. I think they're the perfect group to show this. Yeah. Because the Brig and Liz, neither of them have left Earth before. No. So it'd be very different if you tried to do this with the Doctor with Ben and Polly. Because Mm -hmm. odds are Ben and Polly would move with him. Yeah. And so it's a different experience. Whereas here, like... None of the other doctors would have really transferred on their own, I think. I think having one, like, like just having the doctor go is probably the best option. Yeah. Because, like, you you then kind of go into this whole thing of, like, you say if Liz went over, like, it was like, do they do, like, the switcheroo to try and get the, the one over on someone? But I think that's, like, that's way too much in this one story. I think just having it be yeah. the doctor go over and seeing this parallel world mm. is interesting. I think this season was the best season to do that. Yes. Because of the way it's set up. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So in terms of the alternate characters that he meets, there's one character that he doesn't meet. Yes. And that is Sir Keith. Sir Keith. Who had died in the parallel world. So we mm-hmm. only have prime Sir Keith. Who, in my opinion, needs to grow a bit of a backbone. <laughs> ah, God love him. He's doing his best. <laughs> he is, right? But here's the thing. Right. Mm-hmm. He's a nice guy. He clearly wants the best for everyone. And he's not fully bought into Stallman's brilliance because he brings in Sutton. He clearly supports the brigadier and he supports the doctor. And he's like constantly saying, I'll go to the ministry, I'll go to the ministry, I'll go to the ministry. However, in episode seven, mm-hmm. he returns his arm in a sling. He's planning on suing, at the very least, Stallman for trying to run him off the road or whatever. And when the doctor says, you know, Sir Keith, tell them to shut down the drill when Stallman has locked himself away. Yeah. I do not have the authority to shut down the drill. Dude, you just came from the ministry who gave you the authority to shut down the project. And you have heard evidence that one, there is a very clear, imminent danger to the entire planet. And two, Stallman has lost his nut. You do not need to visibly see him be a lunatic in order for you to shut down the drill that is the one part in the story where i'm like dude grow up back you do have the authority you literally came back with a briefcase with the authority written in it yeah like you know like like, and like when he knows that stallman set him up to be delayed Like, like that alone is like, no, bring, please bring the fury. Like, why did he go to the shed first or the hut first? Maybe because he thought that if he went to Salmon first, then... Or no, I think he thought he was looking for... No, he was looking for the doctor. So I yeah, feel... Yeah, but like, you have the other... Go shut it down. The other people in that room will pay attention. I think it's more so he realizes that, like... And he said it before, like, that the doctor mm. probably is smarter than Salmon. So if he if he tells him to shut it down, it's probably best that the doctor on hand to reverse whatever damage has been done, or at least oversee the. Maybe, but possible. like, I like, I have a feeling that Sir Keith is is very effective 
in an administrative role. However, I think he's in the entire wrong industry. I feel like he should be overseeing like the health service or he should be like in charge of, I don't know, like a hospital or fisheries or something else. Not not this type of thing. Not, he's, he's, not, he's, not things where you're, inter- you're interacting with the lunatic fringe? Yeah, like when, he, when he's too... No, granted, like hospitals have like you know their rogue sign, mm-hmm. your rogue surgeons and rogue doctors or whatever the case may be. But I think he would be better suited to that side of the thing, because you don't have like granted you have like your chief of medicine, but at the same time like he's got the duty of care of all his patients. Like you got that Hippocratic oath to mm-hmm. also like hold up. Um, yeah, he's just, the hypocritical oath that fucking Stalin works under. Pretty much. Um, <laughs> so I yeah I. Th- it, it's again I think part of some of the bits bias is because I love uh, Christopher in the role mm. uh, he's just he he's so versatile as well because when you see like Sir Keith then you're going to see him in, as Jago two completely different characters mm. and then you're going to see him in Agatha Christie which is slightly similar to Jago but again different mm. um, he's just a very talented actor and again like he made you feel like the sort of like, ah, God love him <laughs> <laughs> you, just want, you just want to give him a cuddle <laughs> Uh, yeah so that's pretty much all I've got to say about him cool and then we go on to our other characters where we have their prime version and then their doppelganger Mm -hmm. who do you want to do first how about we start off with Liz because Liz like still technically you know the the companion would come next in the Mm. discussion so Liz and uh, section leader section, Shaw. Sec- section leader Shaw. Sorry, yeah, because like there's Benton is platoon under leader. There's brigade leader. There's I like, can't believe it's not the leader. There's <laughs> it's just those things. Like, doctor, 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 yeah. doctor, 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 leader, 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 leader. <laughs> uh, so yes, Liz and section leader Shaw. Okay, so there are two things about Liz that mm. I love in this story. The first one is the first time we see her, she is elbows deep working on the TARDIS alone. Yes. He has left her there for God knows how long, a day, maybe more, because we see him driving in and what's presumably driving in the morning time. She's not with him. Mm-hmm. Working on the TARDIS console, replacing parts and running tests by herself. And that shows a how skilled she is, but also how much he trusts her, mm-hmm. and also why Barry thought that she wasn't <laughs> she wasn't dumb enough to keep on as a companion. <laughs> but this is this is very interesting, right? Because, like, no, I'm not saying that Liz has a comparable knowledge to Zoe. Mm. Well, except maybe Liz can light a fucking candle. Uh, <laughs> not gonna let that go. Um, but you never see him like speak down to her intelligence or like no one undercurrent that we have seen throughout this season and we will probably see it for the next season as well Mm. is that the doctor has this very much oh yeah art love visiting it i don't want to stay here though (laughs) 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 um oh god no um but like you know but he never takes that out on liz no, whereas I think, as you know, I think Troughton might have. I think Troughton might have. He might have. Might he mm. have? He might have taken that out on his companion. 
Yeah. Uh, but I don't see him and Liz going, they're not a natural mm-hmm. pairing. Um, the second thing I love about mm-hmm. Prime Liz in this story, I happen to be a doctor, Brigadier. Yes, Liz, you are. Yes. You are, you are, you are. Though afterwards, he still calls her Miss Shaw. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Alistair. I love how she calls him on it. Yeah. And I am devastated that we have now come to the end of the four stories and not once does anybody, including Liz herself, refer to her as Dr. Shaw. Yeah. Now, I mentioned earlier in trivia the one of the stories that Daisy Ashford has done. Mm-hmm. And there is a fantastic moment in that story. I'm not going to spoil what the story is about. There's a fantastic moment in that story where Liz is sort of, we hear like Liz's thoughts, right? She's talking to herself or she's thinking to herself. And I am Elizabeth Shaw. I am Dr. Elizabeth Shaw. When did people stop calling me Dr. Shaw? Yes, Liz, own it. Petra owns it in the alternate timeline. You need... To own that. Third thing that I really like about Liz. This is her shortest dress today. And Trish likes it. <laughs> Just saying. Not wearing the high boots. Would no. have been a nice add, add-on. But the skirt. It seems like, the, short, seems like the shorter the skirt, the higher the boots. I'm, yeah. not, compl- I'm not complaining either. <laughs> um, I, I no, do you, So how do you want to do this? Will we, just, will we both talk about... Prime and then both talk about parallel. Yeah, or yeah I think so. Yeah. Okay. Probably, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, like I agree. Like it's great to see her actually working on the TARDIS. Like it's mm. great to see her doing, you know, like doing stuff like help helping him out. Uh, we also get to see again her skills with computers and like the fact that she's um, able to practice medicine or to some degree of it. Mm. Like she, like uh, the doctor, doctor basically he doesn't tell her how to repair the supercomputer or the master computer. She just repairs it. Like, and, like, granted, no, you know, okay, you put in the fucking control circuit, or that's what it appears to be, but you have no idea what else is there. So, like, Liz, Liz is consistently good in, in showing her capabilities, which is which is what I love. Yeah. One thing I didn't mention in the trivia about, like, when we see Liz again, we don't see her, but we do hear about Liz in the Sarah Jane Adventures. Mm-hmm. Yes. There is a story where lots of past companions got mentioned. And they mentioned that Liz is on moon base. Yep. Working away. With the with the poly cocktail in hand, just ready we're ready for yeah. them. <laughs> um, which I love. Like I I love Liz. I want more of Liz. I will probably fall down a big finish rabbit hole now that we've gotten to the end of, of Liz's run. Then we have section leader section leader Shaw. That's really hard to say. Yep. Uh SLS. No, I was going to go. Um, I, uh, she's very different from our Liz. She, she is, but it's it's easy to see that Liz was having such a ball playing Caroline. that character. Sorry, Caroline was having such a ball playing that character. Oh, yeah. Like, oh. I can understand why she liked it so much. Like, sexual leader Shaw, there are some bits that are just pure Liz that are in there as well, though. Yeah. She is very pig-headed. Mm-hmm. But she is listening the whole time and she does adapt her attitude over time like Liz did in Spearhead. Yeah. 
do you know it's a more extreme version of that but she listens to the doctor she believes him over time because who the hell would come up with this ludicrous fucking story mm-hmm. and she is still willing to go toe to do to go toe to toe with the brigade leader mm-hmm. now i don't think our liz would have shot anyone in the back no maybe knock them out maybe knock them out yeah also section leader shaw it's kind of sexy not a big fan of the wig got too big but kind of sexy yeah well like the wig isn't that bad like it's not that bad but it doesn't suit her that much yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Time Traveling Team After Dark. <laughs> yeah, no, she's like, this is like, yeah, she's very hot. Oh. I, I, I thought she was hot last week, but not very hot here. Um, one thing I love about Shaw is that, the, okay, she's great at the authority side of things. She's mm. really, really good. But I love how, and again, this is on to Carolyn's performance, you get the sense that she, when the doctor mentions her, you know, the the, diff, the the way that the paths diverged between the mm. two, she has she still has this regret that she was never able to follow on her science dreams or allowed to follow on with her science dreams. Yeah, as soon as she said that she read physics in at Cambridge yeah. or at university, yeah, that's kind of like the it's just a little turning of that key. Yeah, and it, it's like so, sometimes again in parallel dimensional stories, all it takes is like just one small mention of the thing that keeps you together or keeps you the same. Mm. that now unless you're Tilk and you're told that Abydos is destroyed in which one you just shoot fuckers down <laughs> um, yeah so um, no I really really enjoy her performance in this and um, again because as you said like you know, she's listening she's got a rational mind and that's further emphasized by like her good cop moment that she has with the doctor which is like look you don't like your story is fucking ridiculous I don't think you're a dissident I think you're like you're like a free speecher and if you if you admit to that, I can make sure that you get a very soft sentence. Yeah, and because I, I yeah I think she's someone that doesn't like the violence of the Republic. A sense that I got, and this could be me reading way too much into things, which I do on the regular. Given her dynamic with the brigade leader, mm-hmm. and particularly how as he goes further and further off the fucking deep end, mm-hmm. how much she stands up to him. Do you ever get the sense that like she resents him for making her who she is? She has to be who she is because the brigade leader is there constantly watching her. Yeah. Do you know? And it's why when he's not there, she can have that quieter moment. No. Yeah, no. It's, that's actually a really good point because she always seems to just be like head to head against them like there's there, there's never like this moment of agreement between the two of them since the doctor arrived the I closest think, thing they have is when they're good cop bad copping shouting questions at him yeah but even then that's just the routine like that's yeah. not um it's gonna be a very strange parallel right hmm. but um as you know i'm a huge x-men fan I th- and I firmly will state anyone, I think one of the greatest X-Men storylines of all time was Age of Apocalypse, mm. where for an entire year, X-Men storylines were stopped and they just became this alternate reality version of the X-Men. 
where Magneto was in charge, Apocalypse was in charge of the world, Magneto was in charge of the X-Men. It was fantastic. And Magneto was given an opportunity uh, to send Bishop back in time to prevent the actual creation of this alternate universe. Mm. And he, 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 he willingly helps him. Like, knowing full well that his world will end. He will not have the relationship he has with Rogue. He will not have his children. None of this. That will end. Yet he willingly helps him, and he convinces the X-Men to also do it. Liz reminds me of that here, where it's like, she knows that her world is fucked. But she willingly helps the Doctor and Sutton and Petra go along with her to do it. Mm. And much like in Age of Apocalypse, Magneto has to try and stop some of his, like, yo, no, it's different with Shaw, or sorry, with Stuart. But Magneto has to try and stop his, like, some of his ardent supporters from going ahead, like, you know, from trying to stop the plan. Mm. So, like, I like it's a, I think it, like, it was a very nice parallel that yeah. it tied the two of them together. And it just, again, made my respect for Shaw go up a small bit more. Yeah. Speaking of Stuart. Stuart. Or Brigade Leader, as mm-hmm. I've been calling him. Mm-hmm. We have the Brig versus the Brigade Leader. Yes. Brigadier, she has reminded you. <laughs> she is a doctor. Call her by her motherfucking correct title. I am not going to be paying attention in any big finish I listen to. Do they have her call him? Do they have him call her Doctor Shaw? Because I was convinced that they call it, that called her at least once in yeah. season seven, and I'm very disappointed that I found that I was wrong. I I thought like we at least get her in spearhead, you know? Yeah. I, I was convinced we did, and we never did. The thing about the Brigadier here is that I think the Brig in this story is very much the Brig that we've come to know. Yeah. He's easygoing when he needs to be, but he can still be very much to the point. Mm-hmm. And there's one bit where I nearly wet myself every time I watch it, <laughs> which is when Benton comes in and he's like, I told you to bring in Stallman, but he wouldn't come. What do you say? He wouldn't come. He's like, this is a chance to use your initiative, Sergeant. And he goes full like drill sergeant on him. And Benton nearly wets himself. And you can tell he, like, the brig is enjoying it so much because Benton leaves the room and the brig just kind of starts laughing to himself. I actually thought you were going to say the part where, like, the doctor was looking looking at a photograph of the brigadier going, oh, it's a good thing you grew that moustache. And Benton, like, starts kind of laughing, at which point he gives Benton the eye. He goes, like, shouldn't you be, like, finishing your, like, duties and all this type of stuff? Well, I have that under Benton. That moment does come uh, up. That's more of a Benton moment. But, like, that bit with where he's like this is a chance to use your initiative sergeant he's like yelling at him like full drill sergeant mode because Mm. that's not who the brig is that's not how he gets things done Mm. and he seems to have so much fun when he does do it (laughs) i oh that's the thing is like the brig is like he's definitely someone that hates being hamstrung by protocol like as evidence Mm. like you know with the thing with stalin goes like i formally request you stop the drilling as well no it's like fuck you know i have a gun i wish i could just shoot you <laughs> um but yeah like, i love how he's like amiable with people on, and then like the fury and the thunder comes and then he can just go back to being very nonchalant again afterwards he did have one stupid moment though i don't know if you caught it right mm-hmm. when the doctor catches stallman in the brigadier's office about to smash the control chip or whatever mm-hmm. and then the brigadier comes in yeah Stallman and the doctor were in your office without you. And Stallman has your swagger stick. Mm-hmm. Why did you let them leave the office? <laughs> Why don't you believe... What, like, that was a bit of a miss. 
yeah. under like dude he's like yo i don't know what you're talking about doctor it's like dude they were about to get into a fight like like they were in the middle of a fight stallman had your had been rooting around in your office for your swagger stick he was clearly planning on doing something with it and he didn't follow up on any of that i'll bash you good <laughs> i'm like alistair did you hit your head like <laughs> do you need a cup of tea like <laughs> what the hell <laughs> It's it's the glue from the mustache. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have his douchebag alter ego or his alternate version. Like, right, I get that he's meant to be like a darker version of the brig. But I don't think that the brig, even in his darkest moments, would ever be as cowardly as Stuart is in the alternate reality. The thing with the brigade leader, right, is mm. the brigade leader is everything the brig hates hates and he's everything the brig isn't or rather the brig is everything the brigade leader isn't Mm -hmm. the brig people follow him yeah because they trust him Mm -hmm. and they respect him the brigade leader people follow him because they're afraid of him yeah the brigade leader is all false bravado all this sort of shouting and yelling that the brig never needs to do and he only ever pulls out when there's very extreme need. And even then, like I said, with the bit with Benton, it's kind of done in humor yeah. a little bit. But with the brigade leader, it's all this bravado. You know, like the fact that like when the technicians run away, it's like, have them come back here. But it's like, dude, the place is exploding. Like, yeah. Get your stick out from up your ass. But all it does is just hide his fear, the fact that he's a coward and he's a bully. Mm-hmm. Petra calls him on it Sutton calls him on it he's a coward and a bully and he's weak yeah like, can you imagine like our break right I'm gonna say our break because he's ours our break that we saw last week in the ambassadors of death have this amazing story in terms of his physical presence can you imagine him making all these sort of like woe is me faces when he's losing a he wouldn't lose a hand to hand fight anyway yeah and he wouldn't make all these like you punched me, yeah, no. type faces. Like I don't think the brigade leader is the evil version of the brig. Mm-hmm. I think he's this sort of it's a mirror image. Everything the brig isn't. Yeah. Um. He does also have a funny line though. <laughs> um. When the doctor comments that he is not from their world, and the brigade leader looks up and says, "Then you won't feel the bullets when we shoot you." <laughs> possibly best line of the episode (laughs) probably although i do like the mustache line Um, like i think like we've talked before like about how like like the brig obviously comes from a military family yeah that's very evident in his character but like stewart is like one of those it's the same thing but I think what the brig has is that he's one of those, we've always thought about it, he's one that disdains officers that have entitled entitlement because of their rank. Mm. And, like, you know, obviously, you know, we, like, we've talked about Sharp before, right, where you could purchase your commission, you could be, like, a complete fucking idiot who doesn't know how to do anything versus, like, you know, hard grafter, um, I suppose like because like Sharp wasn't the only one that uh, got a battlefield commission to like mm. a junior officer, but you'd have guys that would do that would be ensigns 
or lieutenants or whatever the case may be and they would just be way more effective but whereas here with um like just steward it's like it's almost like he is that person that decides to rely on the fact that he's from a military prestige and he actually can't back it up because the system that they're in support like, is very supportive of the of like i suppose like i suppose the higher ups you know i have just realized who he is who is he the colonel what's his face from sharp um, Sim- oh simerson yeah yeah he's simerson he is simerson <laughs> he'll get fucking cut up by an irish priest and get kicked in the bollocks <laughs> uh <laughs> whereas like i with the brigadier i everything we talk about the brigadier i always remember the line from zoidberg and futurama it's like you're such a man i follow him to hell and back i would <laughs> yes yeah. yes i would yeah and one man that definitely would follow him to hell and back is benton ah benton sergeant benton yep so we have sergeant benton and then platoon under leader benton yeah. Or pull. Pull Benton. <laughs> pull Benton. Pull. Um, oh, Benton. I'm so glad we actually have Benton properly in a story. He was yeah. in it a little bit last week, but this is, we get to see the real Benton here. And yeah. Benton, and a lot of this, John Levine is like this as well, right? But Benton, he's fun, he's charismatic, and he's full of heart. Yes. And that's the thing about Benton. When Benton is disappointed or sad, you feel like someone has kicked your puppy. Mm-hmm. Because that's what Benton is. Yeah. Benton is a puppy with a gun. <laughs> that's a terrifying <laughs> thing. <laughs> but you mentioned the thing with the picture. Yeah. I love how he, and we will see this going forward, right? He gets caught up in the banter. Only to then sort of be reminded by the brigadier's raised eyebrow or comment that, yeah. oh wait, shit, I'm just the sergeant. <laughs> yeah, it's like it is like the relationship is like it's amazing. It's like it's all right to have the ear of the brigadier, but don't get too familiar, you know. Yeah, and I kind of get the feeling that, and more so with that bit that I sort of laugh my ass off at every time is that, um, obviously the brigadier respects Benton. He's a solid right hand to have, or whatever. Mm. But you kind of get the sense that every time the brig sort of hauls Benton up on something, so gives him the eyebrow, mm-hmm. it's more so him trying to help him be better. Yeah. Like, yeah, you know, we're having a jokey moment at, right now, but you're a sergeant. What is, you know, not know your position because I'm a brigadier, but like making sure that Benton knows what is appropriate and what isn't so that when Benton goes off in his life Mm. and when he serves with somebody else the brigadier has taught him well yeah do you know and the fact that like he does like you know like chance to show your initiative and whatever he says it in a sort of joking scare the shit out of him kind of way but i think in some ways he kind of means it do you know Mm -hmm. it's a chance for benton to grow yeah like like they're like they're not like they're not buddies, they're not friends, they're not whatever. No. But as you say, like Benton is like the the solid right hand that the brig knows that he could leave in charge of a small detail, well, of it mm. and hopefully grow it. But he's also the one that he knows that Benton is the one that he can rely on. Yeah. And yeah, no, it just for something like, it's gas, like you know, for like such a, you know, a I won't say a small character. 
Well, at the moment, he still uh, yeah. is quite a small character. But it, he will, such a, he no, will get... For such a minor bigger. character, yeah. in, in, you know, like what some people would say, like the overall nearly mm. 60 years of the show, the love I have for this man is just like, you can't... It's just amazing. Versus his alternate ego, who's just like, you know, you know, the way I describe I don't like seeing John Levine play the bad guy. I, no, I don't. Right. It's like seeing your favorite cousin acting the bollocks for some reason. You know? I don't like seeing John Levine not smiling. No, it, it, it's weird. Mm. It's like, like me. It's like me without long hair and a beard. <laughs> <laughs> that was it's also weird. very weird. Yeah. Uh, Platoon underleader Benton has none of the heart that Sergeant Benton has. Mm. While he's nowhere near as brash as Stuart, there is no sign of the Benton we know in no. there. Though his conversion to Green Benton. 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 Did, did give us one of the funniest fan edits ever. It, I actually think it's better than Danger Mouse. <laughs> Jesus Christ, Benton! Benton, oh my god. It's so good. <laughs> it's so, so good. And I, I refound it the other day because like I need to have it ready so yeah. we can share it. Like We'll share it on Twitter and stuff after this yeah. episode goes out, but it's so funny. Because <laughs> A, you have just that thing in general. For people who don't know what we're talking about. Yeah. About, what, <laughs> 10 the, years ago at this point? Almost 10, I think. Yeah, because when I went first went snowboarding with Niamh and Liz. Yeah. Um, There was this viral video of a guy out walking his dog. And his dog takes off across a field towards some deer. And it's just this video of this guy screaming his head off for his dog. The dog's name is Fenton with yeah. an F. But that was a big debate for ages because no one knew if it was Fenton or Benton. Yeah. And it's just him screaming, trying to get the dog to stop. But see, they're obviously in a national park, but there's a road going right through the middle of the park. And the yeah. deer are going onto the road as cars are moving, going up and down. So you just see this guy doing his best to run after this insane dog. And all you hear is just the man be like, Fenton, Fenton, Jesus Christ, Fenton. <laughs> it is the funniest fucking shit. I remember, The reason why I find that so funny, though, is that when we were, when we were, I think it was when we were coming back from snowboarding. Yeah. My sister's friend Liz was driving the car in front of us and we were trying to get her attention. And so Neve just stuck her head out the window <laughs> and shouted it down the road at her while we were driving like 40 kilometers an hour down the road. And so Neve's head just stuck out going, Fenton, Fenton. It's so funny. Anyway, long story short, someone has taken Benton's conversion, like AU Benton's conversion. They've taken the little bit at the start where you have brigade leader being like, Benton, get out of there. Benton. And then they run the Fenton thing over it. And it is the funniest shit ever. It, it's so good. It's, oh, it's brilliant. We, we went off on a tangent, but like, I've been waiting for us to get to this episode <laughs> for so long. So next on the list is Sutton. Yeah. I think Sutton... Is probably the most like himself in both. Yeah, he's he's a little bit less cavalier in the alternate dimension, mm. which is understandable given the yeah. world that he's in. Yeah, because he's not part of that dictatorship machine. No, but like 
in both realms in both dimensions he's like he's still a professional and his sole focus is on safety and not Stalman's lofty goals hmm. and getting to know Petra a little bit more yeah um, I I actually prefer alternate Sutton because I think his relationship with Williams is a bit more about breaking her free from the system than wearing her down with his charm yeah the thing is that like <laughs> prime Sutton he thinks he's very charming yeah emphasis on the word thinks mm-hmm. now his failure of being charming is actually quite cute it's a little bit sexist but it's quite cute yeah the difference though and i do like how he and petra clearly develop some sort of friendship that maybe will lead to more at the end and i love how basically everyone on that base was clearly shipping the two of them mm-hmm. like everybody like liz smiles the brig smiles like, they're all in on it like <laughs> Um, I think the difference, though, with A.U. Sutton and his relationship with Petra is they've clearly worked together for longer. I get the sense that he's been on the project mm-hmm. a lot longer than Prime Sutton has. Yeah. Like, he wasn't pulled away from some foreign drill. He was assigned to this project. Um, no. And they've clearly had a working relationship that's built up more over time. Mm-hmm. So... When you see them, him being more um, personal with her, even with her position, you can kind of see where it's coming from. Whereas Prime Sutton, part of it is like, "Ooh, girl, yeah, hi, girl, I like you look nice," and that's that's kind of where it starts. Um, though I do like how it does grow into a natural friendship over time, which I like. Yeah. But I, I, I think overall, like the, the 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 Sutton I was most in kind of engaged in was the alternate Sutton. Yeah, I will say that they're both very brave. Yeah, like, like that's the thing. Like for for someone that repeatedly says like Geez, I don't want to fucking risk myself for this shite, he, he throws himself in head first. He's a rigger, like yeah, you know? ab- absolutely. And like, again, it's like even like when the bit where you know, um, in the prime universe when he helps uh, stop the the blowout of the outflow pipe like he's there with all the lads like you know fucking like making light of the situation giving them all the kudos all that kind of stuff he's like not quite to the level of the brigadier but mm-hmm. he does seem like someone that you'd like to have in charge of you at that situation yeah definitely like he's you know he's like he's the boss that would go for a pint with you yeah yeah very much so and I suppose his partner in crime would be Petra slash Dr. Williams. Yeah, and I think Petra and Dr. Williams are also very similar. Um, the difference being that, for me anyway, the big difference, A, Dr. Williams demands a bit more respect due to her title. Yes. Liz, take note. Whereas Petra, I think, demands more respect because she doesn't want to be treated differently just because she's a woman. Yeah. But I think the big difference between the two of them actually comes down to Stallman. Yeah. Prime Petra's defense of Stallman is because they've worked together for years. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine that before this, they probably had a really good working relationship and there's a great deal of trust between them. Yeah. Like even like, you know, um, Greg says it. He's like, you know, oh, you know, he'll listen to you. Now, mm-hmm. he hasn't seen that since he's come on board. So clearly someone told him, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, no, Petra and Solomon, they're great. They, they've been working together for years. They have a great relationship. Dr. Williams, though, I think it's more 
the position that he is in rather than him the person yeah i don't think she trusts i don't think she has any respect for director stallman mm-hmm. i think it's purely his position no anyone that and wears, her position in reference to that anyone that wears tiny square sunglasses there's something up with him mm-hmm. <laughs> um no again petra is another character like now this on this one i was engaged in both i was mm. really into both um versions because i did quite like petra because we, we don't know what her like standing is is she like, Stalin's assistant is she like a uh, like a, is she, she says a, private assistant right okay but we don't know if she's a doctor or is she just like his assistant and i get the sense that she's just his assistant hmm. so like i would love to kind of see i suppose that's a small part of maybe what i like to see this about stalman what is he like pre the project yeah. that she seems to be willing to defend him so much hmm. is it because like this whole thing he's a great man or it's like no he's like he's a he's a good he man is a great man he was great and whatever but like, is no is it like that oh he's a great man or is it that he's actually a good man mm. it's just his work has gotten the better of him type thing but i love the fact that they both versions have the same core strength of character in the way that she refuses to now again this is more for, for the respect thing but she doesn't kind of buy into sutton at mm. the start like in the prime universe and she does stand up for herself a lot but dr williams refuses to be bullied by the brigadier or sorry yeah. by by stewart and the calls him out in it and saying like you know your bullying isn't fucking helping me yeah um and i suppose to speak about the two of them the one has a tragic ending one has a yeah. happy ending but their endings are together mm. and there's a nice synchronicity there i think yeah i agree and finally, we actually have the the one person that could be labelled a fucking villain in this story is... Actually, before we get on to Stallman, the Primords, what did you think of them? I think they're good. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I wouldn't consider them... Like, usually we would have that sort of thing as a character or mm-hmm. whatever. I don't think that's needed in this story. I think no. it was... It was a nice way to flush out the story without being filler. Yeah, they're not like those fucking sentient plants from the Daleks' master plan. No. Or, or the, um, what is it, the fucking, no, not the, uh, sorry, the chase, not the Daleks' master plan, yeah. the chase. They were the Daleks' master plans, weren't they? Different plants. Same concept. Same concept, sentient plants fuck right off. Yeah. Um, especially now since I've played uh, Jedi Fallen Order. Fuck sentient plants. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I like the Primars. I thought they were, like, stop it. I thought they were like... <laughs> Uh, I thought they were like a nice little add-on to the overall story. Yeah, um, I think the effect was relatively good. I think how a green goo in the earth makes someone into a primate. Like, they don't go into that, but they don't need no. to. The story doesn't need that description. No. Um, It's a nice way of pushing the story forward mm-hmm. without being clunky. Yeah. Um, But the Stallman. Stallman and A.U. Stallman, I have one word that describes them both. Asshole. <laughs> like, seriously, like, dude, project leader or no project leader, you seriously need a fucking bitch slap. Like, not a punch, not a, like, an actual just bitch slap, like, like, backhand right across the face. He's like, in both realities, the man is an absolute asshole. And you can't even blame it on the green goo, because he was like that before the goo got involved. Yeah. 
oh, like, absolutely. And it's like, he's the worst example of the know-it-all head scientist that we've seen. Oh, because yeah. He is he, the new bar no, for that. Because he openly insults his underlings and he deems, or, or, or those, he deems to be less smart than him. Hmm. Like, as far as I'm concerned, he is the new bar of how obnoxious, ignorant, self-entitled, egomaniacal and heartless this Doctor Who style of scientific leader can be. Hmm. Like, if you compare him to Lawrence from the Silurians, right? Oh, he, oh, he was just a fucking pain in the ass. Yeah. But the difference with Lawrence was that very much, this is my project. Nobody will not stop the project. A lot of dialogue got re- rehashed, right? Yeah. Yeah. In the two stories. The difference is, Stallman actively sabotages his own equipment mm-hmm. because the equipment didn't agree with him. Yeah. Lawrence wanted to find out why there was drops in energy output. He never said the machine was wrong and that the energy outputs didn't exist. But, and see, there's a difference is that like, with, okay, Lawrence was like, was the head of the project. Mm. Stallman is the project. Like, the, like, this is him. Like, the drill is an extension of him. Put penis metaphor, whatever way you want to think of it, you know? Uh, he, like, like, this is, like, Stallman is, like, you know, he's going to get all the kudos. He's going to get all the glory. He has to share it with fucking no one. And he's willing to lose and whoever or burn whatever along the way. Yeah. Like, the fact that he took out the computer chip yeah. and broke it. And that was while he was still being somewhat normal. Mm-hmm. that is just something he would do anyway the computer is wrong the computer mm-hmm. is too like then reprogram it if you think it's too sensitive yeah and like <laughs> it's or was... unplug it if you're not planning on using it <laughs> but like it's it's funny right is that like alternate stallman he's got some excuse because he's in a world where being this much of an asshole is commendable what the fuck is Prime Stallman's excuse? He's just an asshole. Yeah, like he, he's like he also like he's got like that thing where he hides behind the you know, the shield of the government approval because like, he sold them like this idea, yeah. this idea or this you know, amazing thing, and it's like perpetual energy. Yeah, that's like, energy. and that's like, and if you did want to talk about, you know, that's the, very very like. And yeah, if you want to talk about the whole, you know, classic who was never political fucking thing, it's like, this is a great example of where, like, the whole concept of, like, money fucking kind of trumps, like, common sense, fucking human lives, acceptable. It's just, it's like, it's a, it's a very, like, even though they're not in it, it's a very, like, damning indictment of, like, your government approval over fucking dangerous things. Yeah. And also, clearly Barry Letts didn't like drilling for oil. No, no. <laughs> like drillers, maybe not so much. He, he he seems okay with them, but the actual concept of drilling. Well, yeah, him, but it, it, as a yeah progression of of that. Yeah, yeah. No, I think when we talked about who are our egomaniacal lead scientists who don't listen to anybody and who use the word "this is ridiculous," "this mm-hmm. is ridiculous," "you're being ridiculous." I think Stallman is our new benchmark. Oh, he's first ballot Hall of Fame for these fucking assholes, you know? Yeah. Uh, Jesus Christ, Clint doesn't look too bad, though. <laughs> <laughs> All the guys that Troughton went up against have been nothing. Nothing on this. On Stallman. <laughs> no, fucking hell, like. Oh, God. Congratulations, douchebag. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <sighs> 
maybe that's something that we should do like you know we should like you know have like the annual like team douchebag award <laughs> and the winner of this year and every year goes to professor stallman from <laughs> uh so we have reached the overall for this story and what are your thoughts i'm a little bit sad because this season was very short in terms of the number of stories in terms of the number of episodes it is still shorter yes but like because we had three sevens Mm -hmm. we really lost having more of this dynamic of characters like Mm. if you imagine if you did you have three sevens if you knocked two of them down to a six yeah you could then have another four and a five like you'd have we'd have one extra story this season yeah if you had played it a little bit differently and that bothers me because i really like the characters that we have this season and as i mentioned kind of off air um Mm. earlier on going forward this is kind of it it's yep. like you've got the format will be usually two fours and three sixes mm. to make up a 26 episode season. Mm. So you're looking at about five stories. Uh, yeah, five stories per season. Yeah, um, Which I think this season could have done it, but that's not anyone's fault. That's the that's what they were given Yeah, going into the season. They were, the number of episodes were caught and whatever. This story in particular, though, I love this story. Mm. I've loved this story since I first watched it. I remember you and I years ago talking about this. Mm-hmm. It has always been one of my favorites of John's era. I love how we get to see Caroline, John Levine and Nick try something new in their alternate characters. I love Liz sciencing it up. I love how short Liz's skirt is. I love you're how such, short. You're, I love such how... A, you're such a perv. <laughs> I really am. I don't care. <laughs> I mean, it barely covers her arse. Like, like, and, and that's, like, but like, it's all about the ass for you. Like, first of all, there was like you know William Russell's, and now we've got Caroline Johns. Well, they don't really do low cut tops, so I don't have anything else to look at, right? Yeah. Oh, we also had Barbara in the Dalek pants. Barbara in the Dalek pants. Yeah. They were great. Anyway, I do sound like such a perv. Anyway, regardless. <laughs> <laughs> it makes it, it usually it's the male person on these podcasts yeah so if i was to do it i'd be like oh what a like a man whereas like it's quite great i can just call you a perv it's fine <laughs> yeah but no but seriously this yeah. story has so much that i love about this season hmm. i don't think there's any waste in this story like i said the primords were added in later on in the writing process i think they added to it. i don't think they took anything from it what's really weird is this is a very hard hitting story the end of episode six Hmm. is a terrifying like as in not like oh my god it's a big scary monster it's when you think about what's happening it is terrifying you have three people Shaw, Petra and Sutton about to die and you know it's not just happening to them mm-hmm. it's happening across the entire world that is terrifying and slightly like existential crisis inducing. Do you know? Oh, <laughs> um, like I, I, I spent a good like minute kind of going. If I was in that scenario, what would I do? And I go like, would I dive head first in so the pain is fucking as little as possible? Would I? And then I realized, wait, Liz has got a gun. Fucking one, two, three. That's yeah. it. 
Yeah, and Sutton even says that himself. Mm-hmm. He's like, go on, shoot me. You'll be doing me a favor. Yeah. Do you know? Um, the weird thing is, it's going to sound so bizarre. As horrifying as that is, hmm. this is a really fun story to watch. <laughs> oh, like... Because you're yeah. seeing the two different versions, because, like, you've got Nick hamming it up hmm. as the brigade leader, it's so fun to watch. It's one I often recommend to people for a good John episode. Yeah. For me, this story is hands down a five out of five, which is the second five I've given this season. Yep. And there's only four episodes. No. <laughs> um, How about you? I, I completely agree with a lot of stuff that you said. I actually think I nearly agree with nearly everything you said. Um, like, because we really needed that episode seven ending after episode six. Oh, yeah. We really needed it. Like, even like, just, again, it's just like the Petra, the fact that Petra and Sutton, they drive off together. That, yes, like, because the, like, I said it to tradition, like, as we're, like, it'll be edited out. But I had to take a pause between reading out the summary for episode six and seven because the hairs on my arms and neck were standing up because of just how terrifying that sequence is. They're trapped in the shed as the lab is streaming towards them. And you, like, no matter where they go, like, their world is fucked. And as as I also said there in the character summary, the strength of character of Shaw, Sutton, and Williams Mm. is commendable for the fact that their world is fucked, yet they still willingly help another person try to escape. Knowing that he won't take them with them, yeah. Um, the story as a whole, absolutely loved it. Like, it's a gene. It was a genius idea because, like, you know, the way we talked there about, you know, oh, the inferno opening mm. video giving the whole thing away. It's like you flesh the story out by bringing a parallel world into the equation that really shakes up the usual doomsday monster menace feel that mm. it was actually going for at the start, and like that that in itself was fantastic having people play their dupe their doppelgangers or their alternate versions is a stroke of genius because everyone here is firing on all cylinders like pulling the double double duty like all the core cast phenomenal mm. excellent I, like again this is a, a great supporting cast yeah. i don't think i don't think it's a single flawed performance no. um i don't like evil benton no no a small but you're part. not meant to like evil benton either. no 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 but like, i just don't like you know but like, even like i don't like mean benton yeah. <laughs> um a small part of me wished that there was more like the doctor mentioned more about the links with krakatoa like you know like what what happened like, yeah. obviously but no that's a, probably a big finished fucking story somewhere in the thing but that and like you know the like the oh the mystery of the primords but the story was so well written that I didn't fucking care that I was losing out in this explanation as to what they were. Like I didn't need to, something was like, I didn't need the doctor to tell me, oh, it's regressed the DNA structure, it's regressed our evolutionary whatever. I no, I didn't fucking care about it. Everything else that was going on was so enthralling that I didn't mind. You know, mm. um, it's the same way like that. Like, you know, the numerous red herrings from Evil of the Daleks. Like you know, I was going like, ah, fuck it, I don't care. I was engrossed in the story. It wasn't until afterwards I was like, wait, why were they weighing her? <laughs> Um, but uh, the only shade that hangs over this story for me is that it's Liz's last story and we don't get a proper goodbye but that's not that doesn't impact the actual story itself it's just like when you watch it and you finish it it's like oh when you know it's her last story yeah when you know it's her last story 
it's a problem. If you walked, if you watched it not knowing it was her last story, that would have zero impact on it. Yeah, but absolutely, I had it marked down because, like the other way, sometimes I have a marking and it can change. No, mm. this was a five the minute uh, it ended. Uh, it was even a five like halfway through. Or like you, it was like the same as when we were watching um, Enemy of the World. It was like, oh, this is a five. It's or even War Games. You can kind of tell about midway through a story when it's going to be a five. Yeah. Whereas if you compare it to like Ambassadors last week, Ambassadors was very good. Hmm. But there was bits that were slow. Yeah, there was there was bits. That and were halfway slow. through, you're like, how many episodes do we have now? Hmm. Yeah. Whereas this, you're like, fuck it. We're at the end of episode five what the hell like what's happening next? And, and again it was a story that i was like oh christ i want to break my one episode a night you know limit hmm. um and i did watch it all in one go last night yeah i had originally planned on watching it over two days mm-hmm. but I, i've seen it before and i was like no this needs a yeah because of the of the jumping between the realities this for me anyway in the way i watch it it needed a solid solid run through yeah, like there are like and like there are certain stories where it's like, yeah, you can take a split as to you know when you can when you watch one part of it and you watch a different part of it. Mm-hmm. Um like the invasion was one aspect of that. You could watch like the mystery with um uh, I can't remember his name, Kevin Stoney's character <laughs> and Paca and then like the side the side run aspect of it was the secondary part. But here, no, this is a like, it's a great two and a half hours to sit down and throw it on yourself. And if you're a fan of like disaster movies, like this oh, is yeah. this is fantastic. Like, um, so yeah, highly recommend this story. So this is our probably best rated season. It it is our best rated season. Uh, now there's only four stories, but still we go on average. Yeah, this season across the board because we both had slight deviations mm-hmm. 4.63 across the board is the average nice. for you and me and our combined average yeah cause... we both had two fives which is silorians and this one mm-hmm. spearhead you gave 4.5 i gave 4.75 and ambassadors you gave four and i gave 3.75 yeah this season is amazing oh it's it's fantastic and like it's easy to see why this particular era of Doctor Who is usually recommended for new pe- for people that want to get back into classic or want to mm. get into classic. Sorry, it's easy to see why this is recommended because it's great storytelling, mm. great performances, and obviously there's a whole thing of it's in color. There's no missing episodes, whatever the case may be. Now, obviously, people that listen to us know our love of all the way back. And we'd always kind of say like, oh, you know, watch Hartnell or watch where we can. But it's easy to see why this is such a really recommended starting point. Yeah. The one thing I will say, though, is a lot of people. I think a lot of people skip season seven. Hmm. Because Liz only hangs around for one season. Yeah. Whereas the companion we're going to introduce next week is so well known and beloved. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, because um, like, like that's the defining companion for that, for, for John. Yeah. I was talking to Earl, who does the editing for Mission Log, mm-hmm. and Earl is big into collectibles and, and stuff like that, and we were talking about um, 
Eagle Moss has a Doctor Who collection, mm-hmm. right? They're where I got your figures from. Thank you. Um, and they have a third Doctor set. Mm-hmm. That's the Doctor, the Brig, Benton, and Joe. They don't have a Liz figure. And I asked um, Earl if he knew of anywhere that does them, and very few places, if ever, do a Liz Shaw collectible. When you consider how big Sarah Jane Smith became as a companion and how long Joe was on the show, mm-hmm. Liz gets forgotten. And she shouldn't. She's no. an amazing companion. And these four stories, like we'll see it when we go into next season and we do the next couple of seasons. When you have a solid a season like this, where even if we just take Paddy's scores, Paddy didn't rank any of these four stories under a four. And the lowest I gave one of them was a 3.75. Mm-hmm. This And this has two fives in the bunch. Yeah, This season is fantastic. So if you haven't watched it, please do. And yeah, because like, this has some of the best stories from the john pertwee era like it is like in my humble opinion um because look we talked about like we talked about silurians how stuff that's written nearly 50 over 50 years ago is relevant to today uh great character development if you're someone that's into character development great you know just great action excuse me action-packed stories terrifying moments this is like there's some real hide behind the couch sequences here so if anyone like you know is listening as as you know we, we wants to kind of get into classic who and actually watch it do, please do not skip this season do don't just listen to us watch the season yeah whether you watch it on brickbox or you get the dvds or whatever they're all easily available mm-hmm. um highly highly recommend absolutely so paddy why don't you tell people what's coming up next so uh We've reached the end of season seven, as we have said. And so on Wednesday, we will be sharing our rambling of the Terrence uh, as we discuss Liz Shaw. Now, it'll be slightly different because this yeah. is only four stories to pick from. So we're going to rate the stories yeah. from her best, so from lowest to highest. Uh, so there'll be gold, silver, bronze, and uh, thank you for participating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and then the following Monday, we are on to season eight with a brand new companion. In mm. the terror of the autons. Ooh. Mm. Uh, sorry, it's not even terror, the terror, it's just terror of the autons. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't spring for the duh. <laughs> <laughs> Until next time, guys. Bye. Bye.